It isn't a specific stomach ailment. It doesn't have a name or anything. I mean, it had been building up for so many years that I was, you know, suicidal. I mean, I just didn't want to live. So I just thought, if I'm going to die, if I'm going to kill myself, I should take some drugs, you know? <laughs> May as well become a junkie, because I felt like a junkie every day. Jacob brought you by the good people at Podbelly or uh-huh. whatever, or the Podbelly Network. And then um, my coworker was like, "Who's that black guy you guys got to do that voice?" <laughs> You're looking at him, yeah, Marcellus that, Wallace, right that's here. That's me, <laughs> dude. By the way, that was really good, <laughs> and like it was so good that I was I was uh, hitting up this uh, producer guy about like doing music like for the last year or whatnot. And I was like, hey, man, what do you think about this? And he's like, oh, man, that, that's actually really good. Like, I don't know if I can even do any better than that. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, well, I guess we're rolling with that. So uh, <laughs> for, so after like a year and a half of us trying to find a new uh, theme song, Mr. Art Trejo over here, the fucking Kurt Cobain of this outfit, has uh, blessed us with a new intro. So if you download the podcast um, on iTunes or wherever you get your fucking podcast at, um, you'll hear the, the the fucking debut of this guy's production. And that's that's me talking, by the way. I do put an effect on my voice, but that is me talking in that I can super tell the way, you say, uh, the way you the say certain words. The good friends or the good people. Oh, the good people at Podbelly, Podbelly. Network. <laughs> Speaking of Podbelly Network, please make sure you go to www. Or wait. Uh, I like like in the early '90s how like they would like make it a point to say hashtag uh, colon slash slash dot <laughs> backslash backslash httpphwww.podbelly.com <laughs> to check out more podcasts like this. Um, there's a couple of podcasts that do kind of the same thing as us. Obviously, the world famous Sofa King podcast, and then probably the female equivalent to Art and Jacob Do America called we're not sure yet so oh yeah they do there's they're goofs man i like their show i like um i was listening <laughs> to that disney one um at the gym today and i like how one of them always goes like that like every time something like because we did an episode like that dark disney episode and it reminded me a lot of that but like from the female's perspective so like when they have to talk about an erection like it's it's funny because like they're very hesitant about like when he gets a little boop, and then like the other one's like Dude, I, I hit him up about that episode because I love Disneyland. Sorry, I'm drinking a beer. But um, they were like, well, something, something, something. 
Thanks, Jacob. And I'm like, I'm Art. I introduced myself as Art. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, whatever. <laughs> it's okay. I do 99% of the fucking social media, so I can see how they get confused. But anyways, speaking of social media, um, you want to shout out our sponsor? I want to shout out Fight Back CBD. I actually just took some earlier today, man. It's the weekend. I had a stressful day at work. And sometimes I just need that shit to help me unwind. I don't even need it for uh, muscle pain or anything like that but it does help with that shit man i highly recommend it if you're into like any kind of mixed martial arts or you know don't don't take none of that hard drugs man take some of that fight back cbd stuff it'll it'll tip top magoo you as jacob says yeah so two two drops under the tongue will make whatever you do fight back cbd will make you will have you feeling tip top damn i can't even say my own fucking catchphrase hip-hop magoo (laughs) timbaland and magoo so um yeah and it also i would say that after this episode because this is going to be a pretty heavy episode we're going to try to make it as light-hearted as possible um cbd oil also helps with you know a lot of mental issues too like depression and whatnot so i highly recommend that you know it's thc free so you don't got to worry about you know chasing the white rabbit down the hole or you know making some weird paintings on your mom's kitchen that's true. Wow. I don't know what kind of person Kurt Cobain would have been if he had fight back CBD in his Probably life. Probably would have been here right now. Yeah. Well, he could have got it cheaper if he entered promo code America, America. at checkout. So for ten percent off. Yep. Because get know. yourself a shirt there while you're at it. Yeah. And sh- and if you're on the Facebook Live, check out or what is what is this YouTube Live or something? We're on YouTube and Facebook. Both. Check out this Podbelly shirt, man. Looks great. So if you if you go to our Patreon, maybe you might win a shirt similar to that because you're not gonna have that one because that's the one I took to Halloween Horror Nights. I already sweated it all up, but um, you'll you can possibly win one of those, or you might win of one of our shirts that are coming down the turnpike here soon. Damn. Or maybe some stickers, or maybe a handcrafted mask by Art Trey. Oh yeah. Here. So just go to our Patreon at Art and Jacob Do America at Patreon.com. And just donate a dollar. That's all I ask. One dollar gets you one paper mask. There you go, baby. So with that said, do you want to introduce everybody to the topic today, sir? This is a topic that I I think has been long overdue, man. This is Kurt Cobain. I guess Kurt Cobain, the life and death of Kurt Cobain. Or the death Death. of Kurt Cobain, question mark? Or the murder of Kurt Cobain, question mark? We don't know yet. We're not sure yet. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to we're not sure yet. (laughs) But yeah, um, we're children of the 90s, and from my earliest memories, I always talk about, like, I I always remember sitting on the floor watching MTV with my dad after he would come home from work, and then, you know, my mom would always have it on before she got all super Christian, and, you know, we'd watch, you know, Madonna, we'd watch Guns N' Roses when Metallica finally released a music video for one. Like, I remember all these instances. And the 80s was pretty much, you know, it was either, you know, pop music like Michael Jackson or Prince or Madonna or George Michael or metal at that time was either super underground like Slayer, you know, early Metallica. Um, But metal at that time was a lot of hair metal, a lot of foolishness going on. And I remember like there was it, it was like a bombshell when Nirvana first came out um and dropped smells like teen spirit like there was a world before nirvana and then there was a definite world after nirvana yeah i mean there was definitely like so many bands i would imagine you know i I don't remember the time that much but i remember when like corn blew up you know Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden every band 
try to sound like Corn. Like mm-hmm. Metallica tried to do a new metal album after that with that singer. You know, like every band was like trying to do the new metal thing or try to have a rapper on there, like mm-hmm. whatever it may be. Like everybody was like, that shit's so fresh, we gotta do that shit. You know, I would yeah. imagine it's something like that, like a very, you know, big shift in what the music scene's going into. And, um, and they were, you know, they were almost the complete opposite. You know, we're talking mm-hmm. about like 80s hair metal and things like that, like very glam and talking about women and, you know, like bands like Motley Crue or something mm-hmm. like that. They were very into like that L.A. Hollywood, I'm a celebrity type of thing. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden this guy shows up and he's like scruffy looking. doesn't really look looks like he cares about his appearance. He's more about like the art and like, you know, he clearly comes from like a punk rock background of like mm-hmm. not giving a fuck. It's all about the music and like screw your opinions and what's what's crazy about nirvana too is that that message had been trying to poke its head through for like a while it's kind of like how hip-hop you know mainstream hip-hop is right now a lot of people online always complain about it and like man we need another tupac or somebody to come out to erase everything to kind of like taxi driver like i wish like a rain would come and wash all the scum away and a lot of bands you know that came out were trying to do what nirvana was doing i remember that because everything was so oversaturated with like hair metal and glitzy glamorous like you know that reagan era um of music and you know i i always tell people who revision you know music history i was like okay the first band that really did it was guns and roses they were they were kind of like a bridge between you know your motley crews and you know your metallicas they didn't completely change everything like nirvana but that was the first uh strike then the second strike is when Metallica started, you know, actually releasing, you know, music videos and, you know, that harder, realer, you know, metal, like true metal uh, was starting to get mainstream recognition with and Justice for All and whatnot. So that was the second strike. And I feel like Nirvana, like that was the third strike, because if you look at, you know, Guns N' Roses, that's very much, you know, a lot of people still consider that like hair metal or glam metal or cock rock or whatnot. And then Metallica is kind of like at the other spectrum of it where it's 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 really hard your older brother or your older cousin or that really cool uncle that's what they listen to and you know their their 5.0 mustang or their you know camaro or whatnot mm-hmm. you know but there's nothing for you know the general masses you know to you know attract themselves to and the genius of nirvana was when they came out is it, it had that punk rock uh, mentality and that attitude like it was it was just I don't want to say scary, but it was just edgy enough to, to freak your parents out, but it was still safe enough to where like the general masses could get involved with it because it was basically the Beach Boys and the Beatles meets Black Sabbath and Black Flag. Yeah, I mean, it took everything that we, you know, mainstream rock had established as like, this is what we are, you know, mm-hmm. we're dark and we're the big rock star figure on stage or like very untouchable and and you know we care about women and all these things like that and not that he did it but like this looked like a guy that you know he has a lot of stories of going up to people like that he would just see wearing a nirvana shirt and be like oh hey by the way i'm kurt cobain the lead singer nirvana you want me to sign anything you want a picture like because he was that kind of person like he was not the rock star guy like Mm -hmm. he was the if anything, he's probably like gonna bum on your couch after a show kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, you know? like he was not the rock star guy. No, that, very anti rock. Yeah, yeah. Axl Rose kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, the, the complete opposite yeah. of Axl Rose. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. But anyways, you want to get into the man that is Kurt yeah, Cobain? Yeah, I mean, because when you Nirvana, pretty much, yeah, Dave Grohl was the drummer and Chris Novoselic was the bass player, but pretty much Nirvana was. <laughs> he could have gone solo and he would have done well. You know, yeah. like 
who else is important in fucking Pearl Jam? Probably just Eddie Better could go solo. In fact, he has gone solo. And yeah. Still sells pretty well. Yeah. But, you know, he's he's that kind of guy. You know, he was just an average little Joe born in uh, February 20th, 1967. A Pisces. In, uh-huh, in Alberdeen, Washington, and yeah. which is like small town, small town. We live in a small town, but not that small. I believe It's a logging town. Yeah, I believe it was like 19,000 people. And the way they describe it is the only thing to do there is basically go to the bar, get fucked up, and do drugs. You know, um, I believe, and someone will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the band, I know you don't like Modest Mouse, but uh, Modest Mouse from that same town. I think they were they talked about how. Oh, really? Yeah, and so like they're from that little, you know, same age as this as this. They're probably like the second generation after Nirvana. Okay. But um, they were talking about how it's like a logging town, and in that town, it's like you either get a job cutting wood, or you get a job playing at one of the local bars with your acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. Like those are the two gigs that they have in that town, you know? And I can totally imagine that like, yeah, dude just got out of a bar. is like, Oh, this guy's playing some fucking Johnny cash on the guitar. So like everybody either knew how to play a guitar or knew how to like cut wood. So like <laughs> yeah. I can see how, you know, you know, that was a big thing. And it just, the idea of it, like just puts that image in my head. That's like constantly raining. Everything's green or like, you know, like everything's uh-huh. truck driver. So it's like, Kind of depressing, a little bit, a little yeah. bit depressing. So it I seems just, like hopeless. Like when I think of like, again, you said that Bakersfield is kind of like a small town. I mean, it's bigger than New Orleans, oh, but yeah. we we imagine like compared to L.A., which is just down the street, it's a small town. But like everything's like within you know a two hour drive, basically, right? Yeah. But I always think of okay, what about the kid like in you know nowhere Nebraska, you know where everything is like a five thousand dollar plane ride ticket or you know iowa or whatnot you know slipknot and whatnot yeah. well even yeah i mean even like when corn was young you know like before like cal state was it built you know mm-hmm. before, back when we only had like six high schools like you know i could see how that would be very frustrating to just be like well what am i going to do here get a job in the oil fields or mm-hmm. learn to play country music because country is really big here for some weird reason um, I can see how they would be in a very similar, but hotter, <laughs> the, yeah. much hotter down here. Yeah, it's a different kind of depression. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Come to think of it, I think Daniel Bryan, too, um, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. He's from Aberdeen as well, um, but he's like our age, so he wouldn't have grown up around uh, Kurt Cobain. But, yeah, he talks about that, too. It's just like, you know, your life is pretty much set out, you know, in Aberdeen. Yeah, it was Aberdeen because the sign says come as you are mm-hmm. um he says yeah your life is pretty much set out for you and he goes i knew i had to get out you know and do my own thing follow my own dreams but a lot of people you know it the, you, you there's not a lot of opportunity out there i believe kurt's mom was a waitress you know mm-hmm. at a local diner and his dad was like a you know a mechanic um not even for like a, a mechanic shop i believe it was like a jiffy lube mechanic or something like that yeah. so it's, these these aren't lucrative uh they're very blue collar jobs you know yeah, you got to put in overtime just to afford, you know, the extra PG&E bill. You know, you know it's going to get a little colder this this winter, so you got to put in a little bit more overtime to even pay, you know, yeah. that that larger. And those like, winters are long. Yeah. <laughs> and, but you know what? He did have music throughout his childhood, you know? Like, we were talking prior to this, you know, he had his Aunt Mary mm-hmm. who taught him how to play a couple of instruments and also a couple of his uncles. I don't know if you have their uncles' names, but... Not their names, but they were also in bands, too, yeah. like... Like you were saying, like just around town. Yeah, they, he was he was he got really into that, and I think he started at a very early age. He started learning how to uh, write silly songs, and um, he loved to draw cartoons. So he was already like a very artsy kid. Mm-hmm. And you know, most early childhood, most people described him as just the stereotypical happy American kid. 
goofing off, drawing cartoons, playing guitar, and mm-hmm. just goofing off. You know, it, it really wasn't until, you know, I think it was age nine that his parents divorced. And really, mm-hmm. and you know, that's also a very common thing in America. You know, divorce is like, you know, if you get married, I think 60%, the, the odds are against you. Divorce yeah. is, you know, unfortunately a very common thing in America. And, and this is a world after, you know, uh, the counterculture, after the 60s. Because prior to the 60s, like, you got married and you just stayed with that person forever. Whether, you know, they cheated on you, whether, you know, whether whatever. It was very taboo to get divorced. Mm-hmm. Now you're in a, new, a whole new world where it's just like the rules have changed. Like, it's no longer, it's probably still taboo to get yeah. divorced at this time frame but at the same time you know this is the 60s uh or late 70s or mid 70s and it's starting to be like more okay it's kind of like i i would i would analogize it to like we grew up in a world where like we stigmatize the word gay as having a negative connotation yeah. now in 2019 if you call something gay you know and use it as a negative adjective you know that that's bad you know yeah. it's almost as bad as saying the n-word and so at this time, you're kind of like in that, you know, gray area where like divorce is still taboo to the conservative side of America, but it's starting to become a more common occurrence. Yeah. I think, I mean, we have people like our age, maybe slightly younger or whatever, that have been married like two th- or three times. Two or three times. And it's like, how? Like, yeah. How, you know, you can just keep dating that person. You don't have to marry them after like two months of knowing <laughs> yeah. them. It's weird. But yeah, I mean, that seems to be, I don't know, why, why is that? Maybe we should do like a poll on why, why is that like I think it's social pressure it because I was watching pressure, tax purposes I, I just uh, you know what I was actually watching a documentary on HBO um, about, about you know Kurt Cobain I, uh-huh. and the mom said you know that's just what you did like I was you know 2021 and this just happened to be the guy I was dating at the time and I thought I was in love I liked him you uh-huh. know and, he, and I get that no I, I see I, I get that and I think a lot of times, you know, when you're young and you're in your early 20s, maybe late teens or whatever, when you meet someone like that, you, you fall in love. We talk about, we'll talk about one of Kurt Cobain's early loves. And um, um, you fall in love. And I think sometimes, you know, you get you get a little jaded and like, mm-hmm. you know, you rush into things too much. And so I can see why that's there. But it's really the people that get married like six times and they're like, I'm 32 and I've been married six times. Uh. It's like, how, why? <laughs> yeah. That's, those are the people that I think are like fucking weird. But anyways, getting back to the whole divorce thing, this is when Kirk really started to become more of a withdrawn young man. Mm-hmm. You know, at age nine, he started, you know, he went from being the happy kid, writing silly songs and drawing silly pictures to being a little more withdrawn and not so much into, you know, the things that the average kid was into around town. And I'll point this out too. Um, as a child, he was very hyperactive, you know, before the divorce. And, you know, he they would say that, like, he would he would get into trouble, but it wasn't, you know, outlandish trouble. It was just he had a lot of energy, and, you know, the parents didn't know what to do with him. And the mom said that he took her he took him down to a psychologist, and the psychologist, you know, recommended, you know, a, a kind of a, a precursor to Ritalin, basically. And it kind of, she saw that when he first gave, when she first gave it to him, he kind of, like, went a little off. Like I can't use the exact words she said, but it was it, it, it seemed a little grim. Like it was like, oh, I can tell something wasn't right in his head after that moment. And then it was about this time too. Like you said, they get a divorce, and that's when he really starts to crack. Yeah, he he really starts to crack. And not only is he dealing with with you know becoming that like more emotional thing. You know, obviously hormones start taking into place, mm-hmm. and you know you become you become a little bit more edgy at this time, but. Also, he was kind of being ping-ponging between his parents a lot of times. You know, he was staying with his dad a lot of times. 
he started to become very resentful towards his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, his dad really wanted him to become, you know, wanted him to be that average American Joe of like, you join the baseball team, join the wrestling team. And, you know, his answer to that was kind of like a fucky to his dad where it's like, I'm going to lose these matches yeah. on purpose. And he let himself get pinned very easily or he would let himself strike out and not even try. And like, mm-hmm. I, I saw someone said he would just make dumb faces at the ball. Like he almost wanted the ball to like hit him in the face. Yeah. And so like he was kind of like, you know, very, very much like a fuck you to his dad kind of yeah. thing. You know, like he he almost pushed that like stereotypical male like, like I'm going to play sports and I'm going to like fuck girls and do this whole thing. He almost pushed that aside. Rejected yeah, it. he yeah. rejected it completely. And I think a lot of it was resentment towards his dad and, mm-hmm. you know, leaving his mom and like ruining the the stable happy home that he had as a child oh yeah that was a big part of it because I, that's a, that's something common in people um that go through divorce you know they they tend to put blame on one parent over the other because i remember when my grandparents got divorced like my mom was very much like that you know it, it just in my eyes it just seemed like okay it was just something that just was no longer working out anymore it benefited both parties better you know <laughs> here i am like you know 10 years old making this fucking analogy on my grandparents but my mom like this these this was her mom and dad yeah. and for her to see them you know split apart like she really resented my grandpa and she totally sided with my grandma and i was like well it's not all grandpa's fault you know it's just like grandma you know you know not to get into that but like yeah that was with what was happening with kurt and I guess his dad said, you know, I'll never, you know, find, I'll never marry anybody else again. I don't know why his dad has Richard Nixon. Yeah. Him, <laughs> because I'll never have another wife again. Mm-hmm. And then he marries uh, his stepmom and the stepmom um, ended up having some kids with, you know, Kurt's dad. And, you know, there was some other kids that, you know, from a previous marriage that were brought in, you know, to this situation. So Kurt went from, you know, almost the center of attention with his little sister, with, you know, his mom and dad, to kind of being pushed off to the side. Especially like when, you know, the stepmom and dad Mm -hmm. had, you know, the new baby, you know. So he's starting to feel left out of stuff. And he's, like you said, going through all these changes, you know, through, you know, puberty and whatnot. But then also just having all this mental anguish and there's all this extra energy as well because he was a very hyperactive kid. So this is when he started to really act out, you know, break windows, um, cause fights with his, you know, stepbrothers and sisters and whatnot. And, you know, the stepmother basically said, you know, I want him out of the house. I want, I don't want anything to do with him anymore. And that documentary that I was watching, you could tell, you know, knowing the aftermath of everything that happened, she really puts a lot of blame on herself. She just said, you know, I, that's one of my biggest regrets in life was, was failing Kurt as a child. And I believe this is when Kurt had to go live with his mother, Mm -hmm. um, his biological mother. And with that, um, Kurt's mom, when you, when you read the black and white facts on it, they make her out to be, you know, kind of, kind of like aunt Jackie from Roseanne, like kind of like this unstable, like kind of like carelessly gets into relationships with those, you know, Aberdeen truckers and bartenders and whatnot. Um, but when you see like her actual side of it, the mother's side of it is just kind of dumb luck. You know, here you are this, this mom, you know, that has two kids from a previous marriage, you know, she's just trying to find love again and just finding love in all the wrong places but i guess she had a bunch of boyfriends that were very abusive towards her yeah. and very abusive towards kurt yeah and i don't put her in that same class of like um charles manson's mom kind of thing mm-hmm. you know, she's definitely not there but she definitely you know she's still relatively young her kids are kirk's only what like 
he they're nine when they're divorced, so I assume at this point he's probably like sixteen. So it's not like he's like in college or something. Like yeah, that, you know, like it's not like <laughs> how Stella got still. her groove back. Yeah, he's still a, a teenager, and he's a very rebellious teenager. I think this is one of the things he was getting in trouble for is he would tag around town that God is gay. Yeah, I saw <laughs> that. Yeah, so like you know he was getting in trouble a lot, and I. I could see how, you know, she's trying to, like, still, like, find love. She's still, I assume she would would probably be in, like, her late 30s or something like that. Or even early 30s, maybe. Early 30s. So it's just, like, you know, I I could see how she would still want to be in the dating game. Like, it's not Mm -hmm. like she's, I'm done. I got two kids. I'm out of it. And, And, I mean, and then this, they said that he was a lot like his mom. And Kurt very much wanted that family structure. So I'm assuming if he was a lot like his mom... And the narrative of Kurt's life was, you know, he very much wanted like that, that, that happy home. I'm pretty sure that's what his mom was going through as well. Like she was just trying to find somebody to, you know, replace his father at this time. So, um, did she make some mistakes? Probably, but they, again, like Charles Manson's mother, it wasn't intentional. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that, you know, I wanted to talk to you about this prior to this, but, uh, one of the, one of the places, and I think in like the punk rock community, like, there is a big fu- like family structure. Like we talked about how like metal is that to us, you know, like yeah. metal really unites us and the unites our friendships of like other people that we have that we go to shows and like you go home and you're like sweaty and you like bled together and it's like badass. I think punk community is very similar to that. Yeah. And I think he did find some of that like family structure in the punk community. Uh, one of his best friends is uh buzz Osborne from, from the Melvins. And, like, yeah. and you know, like he talked about how like, the minute he saw the Melvins play for the first time, he was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I'm going to create a band and like mm-hmm. be like the Melvins one day, <laughs> which is weird <laughs> that he was thinking he wanted to be like the Melvins, but still like he, you know, that was, that was the family structure that he did find. He found like the punk rock community and like how, how like accepting it was to like weirdos, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the average American home here. It was like all the weirdos and rejects come together and like mm-hmm. play punk shows together. And, that became his like new family at that point yeah and it's it's also at this time too like his mom you know kicks him out you know for being you know rebellious writing you know abort jesus (laughs) god is gay and all this stuff and um he he's getting bounced around from you know grandma's house to the aunt's house to uncle's house and whatnot everybody keeps kicking him out and all he's really looking for is kind of attention and i mentioned this i believe it was in the metal years episode where um I had a, I had a music class. It was a world music class, and he was talking about he was just shooting the shit with us or whatnot, just going around asking us what our favorite kind of music is. And there was like me and another kid. We were the obvious two metalheads in the um, the class. Uh, I guess everybody else was like listening to fucking uh, Britney Spears and uh, fucking I don't know what else would be a fucking like Creed or something like that. Creed. <laughs> and he looked at us and he goes, "Well, why do you?" He goes, "I can tell one of you guys, you know, uh, probably comes from a broken home. Uh, probably the other one of you um, had some kind of childhood trauma or whatever." And I was like, "Well, yeah, you know, I'm, I come from a single uh, mom home." Yeah. And he was just like, "He goes, that's the thing about you can always tell with a metal kid, not to demean you." He goes, "But you can always tell." It's because, you know, people who listen to heavier music, you know, music that, you know, where a lot of people make fun of it, like they uh, might yell a lot and whatnot, is because they're acting out this aggression, you know, trying to exercise that energy. And it's because they're not getting, you know, the attention from the mother or father or from the family structure. You know, Mm -hmm. mom might be, you know, working three jobs, you know, to support you or whatever, but you're not getting like 
that nurturing love from a parent that you need, like in your early years of development. And that's definitely what happened with Kurt uh, mm-hmm. Cobain here. Like when you watch his story, it's just like, wow, you know, dad, you know, already started a whole other family, kind of forgot him down the line. You know, mom's, you know, over here trying to create a family, kind of failing. And, you know, he's getting ping-ponged around from other people that are not going to provide him with that maternal or paternal love. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you're going to act out because you want somebody to give you some kind of attention. It might be negative attention, but you want that attention on yourself. You want to feel that love. And when he finds punk rock, that's where he really falls in love with the love of his life. Now, he dated a couple of women, right? Yeah. Dude, I feel like such an idiot. But I didn't write her name down. But I know she plays drums for Bikini Kill. Well, there's a there was one before that too. Oh, what's her name? Yeah, that's the one I wanted to. Um, Tracy Miranda, and this is the one that he wrote the song about a girl for on their first album, uh-huh. which I thought was a Beatles record. Uh-huh. Uh, to be honest with you, because that's one of my favorites. The acoustic version of that song is one of my favorite songs. Oh yeah, the unplugged version. Yeah, yeah that is like one of the greatest live CDs of all time. But yeah, about a girl. I really thought that was. A Beatles record, and that's another big influence on his life as well, yeah. was the Beatles. But no, her name was Tracy Miranda. And um, with her, you know, he basically found that love that, you know, he was looking for. She was more of a, a nurturer um, above, you know, anybody else that was in his life. You know, mm-hmm. she provided him with a free place to live, um, went to work, and, you know, paid all the bills, bought him all of this food and whatnot. And all he had to do was sit at home and, you know, write his songs. And so that he could, you know, create, mm-hmm. you know, the music that he wanted in this new scene that he found. Huh. I just Googled it right now. Oh, yeah? It's uh, Toby Ballin. Is that how it's pronounced? I don't know if you had her on the notes, but she's, oh, the, she's the drummer for Bikini Kill. Oh, the second girlfriend? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like he, and, and both of these women are like very strong women. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like it's a fluke. They're, you know, Toby's like this very like feminist activist drummer in a band mm-hmm. that, you know, Bikini Kill is no slouch. Like they're, they're still like very huge following. I just saw him a few months ago at the, um, uh, at the Hollywood Palladium. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, they they sell out night after night. They're not, they didn't rely on the fame of other bands like yeah so like <clears throat> they're still you know he he i think he felt really attracted to those types of personalities of like mm-hmm. wow this like girl is like very intense and i i really dig that they both spoke to different sides of his personality that's for sure because the first one tracy she was more of the the mom basically somebody that would grow up and be like a stupendous grandmother <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah but she didn't have that artistic sense that's why that relationship ended because while he while she was out you know basically supporting the two of them um you know he was creating you know his art you know whether it be painting whether it be writing poetry whether it would be creating songs writing songs a lot of these songs would be on Nevermind or you know the first album um, yeah. bleach, bleach yeah. and um but she just didn't get it, it seemed like. Like, she was just like, oh, that's nice, honey. And, like, that kind of drove him nuts. So the second one, uh, Toby Vale, mm-hmm. she was more of um, more of the artistic type. She was more of the political type. But she had none of those maternal instincts. You know, she was very much, you know, I guess you could say far left. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's what was lacking in that relationship as well. I do think that that's kind of, you know, you said that that was his first love. But I think that this is the love for him that the one that got away kind of thing like mm-hmm. both bands were going in separate directions at this point you know they were getting ready to record their second album like this no-name band 
called Nirvana is like (laughs) trying to record their second album, which, you know, goes out to become one of the biggest albums of all time, Mm -hmm. you know, with Nevermind. And, um, (laughs) he's just kind of bumming it and like, you know, Bikini Kills getting bigger and, you know, at the time they were bigger than, they were going to get bigger than Nirvana. So it Mm -hmm. was just like, both bands are going separate directions, kind of like... Wasn't current. it Fecal Matter? Like, the uh, Nirvana was called Fecal Matter before this? I don't know. I know they were called Bliss for a while. Like, yeah. right before they were called Nirvana, they were called Bliss. Yeah, they were called a couple of things, I think. I don't think they were, like, Nirvana, Nirvana, I think, until, like, 87, I want to say, or 88 or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, during this time, yeah, it was, like, a bunch of different names. Like, it, it could have <laughs> been, like... At whatever band you see like yeah. at jerry's pizza on a friday I night see how they would be like dude dump that loser from fecal matter <laughs> like it's just like whatever he's a nobody yeah but you know one of the biggest songs if not the biggest nirvana song that smells like teen spirit came from bikini kill like one mm-hmm. of them tagged on his wall like kurt cobain smells like teen spirit and then that's where that song came from on their second album yeah it didn't um because it's a obviously we know now it's a it's a deodorant for adolescents <laughs> but at that time like he didn't know that because i guess like that came out like the same year uh, that he formed like in 87 when you know Nirvana actually came out i guess um he thought it was actually like a metaphor like oh it's it's like teen rebellion or whatever like uh-huh. i smell like teen rebellion but no like they were just she was just making fun of him because he stunk really bad yeah. <laughs> or something like that oh man you know sometimes you look for creative outlets and it just backfires but, <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean nirvana was on the cuff of blowing up, you know, and mm-hmm. he didn't know it at this point. I think he was almost basically homeless. So I think when Nevermind came out, like he was living under a bridge at this point, like, mm-hmm. and they were going through different lineups and no, it wasn't like a sure shot thing. Now it feels like a sure shot thing because Dave yeah. Grohl is one of the best drummers of all time. And he, you know, he's and they, drum- didn't, and they didn't even get Dave Grohl until I believe like a couple months before they actually recorded. Yeah. Nevermind. Yeah. That, that's what I mean. Like Dave Grohl came in as like a flex kind of guy. It's like, Oh, yeah. I just get this no name guy named Dave Grohl to come in <laughs> <laughs> and like see if that works. And it worked out obviously, you know, like yeah. Dave Grohl is, you know, he's no slouch. Foo fighters are a huge band to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, they're one of the few bands that could sell an arena kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So it's like, um, <laughs> You know, at the time, it was like, this is a total gamble. It's like, is this going to work? You know, am I going to have to live under this under this bridge and be the dude that dated the drummer from Bikini Kill? <laughs> yeah. Like, it sucked. I could see how for him it was, like, heartbreaking. Frustrating, yeah. yeah. And he's putting, at this time, too, he's putting his soul. Like, you can see, like, his journal entries because that documentary I was talking about on HBO, um, it, it sh- it'll show, like, some of his journal entries. And some of it, like, you can tell it's just satire or whatnot, just him being a little pissant. But a lot of it, too, is very personal. Like, you can tell there's, like, a lot of self-hate going on. You can tell there's, like, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of just angst in general, just, like, frustration. Like, this has to work. Like, or, you know, I might as well just kill myself. This is, like, where you start to see the seeds of all this. This is just, like, just do-or-die mentality, you know? And I believe a lot of that, that's... I mean, a lot of it's luck, too. But the reason why nirvana succeeded as great as it did is because you have to have a driving force behind anything you know talk about like a band like metallica that driving force is james and lars you look at the rolling stones it's it's mick and keith you know nirvana is or was fucking kurt cobain because he was just that driving force he was a lot like i saw a lot of similarities to him and tupac where it's just like he was always creating he was always writing like he was just like he he had definite plans like he would structure everything out like 
as like sloppy as he looked or seemed on the outside like he was a very type a personality like he wrote everything out like hey i need to send this many tapes out to this many record companies i need to do this i need to send out you know promotions to this place i need to do this we need to talk to the you know to the booker here at this this place on monday and then tuesday talk to this booker like he had he he had like he's got to make it or or not mm-hmm. kind of mentality it, it was it was inspiring to see yeah so you know obviously nirvana really blows up and it's you know we talked about it earlier but this is definitely the perfect crossroad this is when uh metal had kind of like killed itself at this point because they had gotten too glossy too bullshit all those like 80s hair metals bands like people were seeing through that bullshit now they wanted something fresh they wanted something that they can relate to and you know, Nirvana was perfect for that. I mean, Kurt Cobain, maybe we should pull a pull up, see who's better looking, Andrew <laughs> Luck or Kurt Cobain. But Kurt Cobain was, in my opinion, was a, he was a good looking guy. Oh, you know? definitely. Yeah, yeah, he was a very good looking guy. He had some like very like model qualities, you know, model mm-hmm. of what we would think of today. Like, because we have models now that try to give, go for that whole like, I just woke up look kind of thing, yeah. you know? Which Heroin I, chic. Yeah. So, you know, at the time it was very revolutionary. And so, you know, for him to come out and look like that and sound like that and the songs were catchy yet abstract and dark and mm-hmm. creepy and you didn't know what was going on and he mumbled a lot. You know, I know, I know people talk a lot of shit about mumble rappers, but he mumbled a lot. Like, yeah. and he was a very poetic guy, but that dude mumbled all the time. Yeah. And so, like, becomes a rock star overnight you know mtv news kirk loaders all over this shit <laughs> Tabitha so, Soren. <laughs> you hear it first <laughs> and mtv plays a huge role in this because you know mtv was the you know we didn't have facebook's and instagram and you know we didn't have fucking little laptops connected to our hands every five yeah. seconds giving us every bit bit of information we could get as a child yeah like i said at the beginning of this episode like i lived for MTV, you know, like a lot of my childhood was spent on Channel 52, Cox Cable, watching fucking MTV. And, you know, like it pretty much set the tone for your life, you know, whether you were going to be that kid, that little cholo that was going to watch nothing but Yo! MTV raps or, you know, uh, the the, the R&B show or whatever, or you watched, uh, you know, Headbangers Ball or 120 Minutes or whatever the show Matt Pinfield had at the time. Yeah. Like it, it set your life, you know, and then everybody watched the Beavis and Butthead or whatever. So my point is, is once MTV adopts you, like you are, you, you are, you are talking to the American youth. They have predetermined that this is what you are going to listen to. And that's what essentially happened. Radio, rock radio wasn't feeling this right away. Like it was MTV felt it and then mm-hmm. it got popular you know, there were other competitors. To, it's hard to believe now that there were other competitors with MTV, but there were channels like The Box yeah, oh yeah, where you that. can you can call in or <laughs> dial or whatever to, like, get Smells Like Teen Spirit on there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the music scene was weird at the time, too. You know, there were, like, you know, bigger bands out there were, like, Butthole Surfers and Primus or things like that, things that would not be popular today. Yeah. <laughs> but they were just very fluky bands that were getting popular like that or Faith No More or something like that, you mm-hmm. know, like, they were weird bands, and so like, but they none of them were the face of rock until like Nirvana really came out and like said like, okay, we're, like, we're gonna put a fucking nail in that coffin of like the '80s glam rock, and like now this is the modern rock. Yeah, it was like the moon landing, basically. Like yeah. they put the flag in the moon, and like this is the '90s. Like yeah. when you think of the '90s, you're gonna think about Tupac, and you're gonna think about Kurt Cobain, <laughs> you know? and, yeah. Ace, and, and Ace of Base. Kirk, Kirk Loader was right between them holding them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean. Another one of the up-and-coming bands at the time was Hole. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Courtney Love was like, 
very similar to what you just said of like i gotta do this kind of thing you know like I think she was dating her manager at the time or something like that. and She, she dated a lot of people. <laughs> she dated. We could talk about a lot of people that she dated, but she dated. She was dating her manager. And she comes from, like, a well-to-do family. Like, yeah. she was getting, like, $1,000 checks a week, you know, which is, like, pretty good. By today's standards, you could probably live off $1,000 a week. Real quick side note. I know we talked about it on the Charles Manson episode technically two weeks ago because we're going to drop two episodes. <laughs> but uh, last Saturday when we did the Charles Manson episode and we were talking about the hippies, you know, and hate Ashbury, how Maddie was saying that, like, you know, a lot of those kids were probably rich kids that, you know, tried to, you know, go and be hippies. That's what it seemed like Courtney Love was. And she, and I looked her up, like I was trying to get a background on her. She was born in San Francisco during, at hate Ashbury. And, you know, both of her parents, I believe, were psychologists and whatnot. But then she would, like, fly off to fucking New Zealand as a teenager or fucking Zimbabwe or whatnot to, to find herself, man. Like, very hippie she mentality. Was a, she was a spoiled kid. I think that that's kind of where, like, you know, similar to a lot of kids that around that age. You know, when you're 15, 16, 17, you know, you're going through that phase where, for me, it was, like, Tool. Like, I got really into Tool around that age. Yeah. And I was into a lot of bands, but, like, I was all into, like, Radiohead was new, so I loved that abstract shit. I love like, Tool was very spiritual to me, so I was like, I'm all, this is me for the rest of my life. This is going to be me. Like, I'm all about abstract spirituality and, like, all this shit, which, you know, eventually I grew out of it. I still respect it. I'm all about Tool, and I'm all about these, like, you know, abstract bands and, like, or it's whatever. It's a piece of your life as a part of your identifying factor. Yeah, but I don't, yeah, I don't make that my entire me of who I am because that would suck. If I was still that 17-year-old boy today, you know, that would really suck. But um, she <laughs> felt, like, it feels like she's never grown out of that, but that's a whole different story. But at the time, you know, like, she she was, like, suing her parents for, like, $1,000. She, like, she was going through all she these... She sued we- her parents? Yeah, she sued her parents for some weird thing, and she got, like, a settlement where they- she eventually got $1,000 a week because her parents were, like, really well off. Yeah. So, and then she was dating her, her manager at this point, so she- her her manager for whole at the whatever yeah and then this is when she's, like, full-on, like, who the hell is that guy? Who is this dude on MTV? Yo, MTV Raps is the only show that doesn't play this guy. But who is <laughs> who is this guy? And, like, she convinced him, like, hey, can I go meet this guy? Like, I heard someone say something, like, I think it was a different podcast that talked about how, like, she, like, told her manager, like, I'll suck your dick if you fly me out to go meet this guy. Mm-hmm. And, like, he did or something like that. But I don't know if that's actually true. But, um, yeah, so she, <laughs> she flew out to go meet him at a butthole surfers concert. Mm-hmm. And then, like met him and it's like you're my boyfriend now we're gonna live together now we're gonna like become this like sid and nancy type of yeah and you know what she was actually in that movie with yeah. gary oldman like she play, she was trying to play nancy but i guess she, she looked too much like nancy and then they didn't give her that role because they thought it was creepy uh-huh. did you know that those are reasons that's so weird to me no, i didn't know that was she the does look a lot like nancy and this story kind of reminds me a lot about sid and nancy as well like that that's it was in the that's back of my topic mind. that we should probably cover later on but next week on the orange jacob <laughs> do america <laughs> we'll wait till like november yeah we got october to handle but um, it was crazy because Kurt, um, he liked her, apparently. I don't know what source is saying this, but I guess he did like her, but he was trying to kind of give her the stiff arm for the longest time because he was still trying to get over, um, you know, his previous girlfriend, uh, Toby Vale, because 
I get he experienced like this is a person he's a Pisces that's why I said at the beginning there's someone that feels intensely you know I'm a Pisces as well and that's a common trait I don't believe in that shit but it is a common trait with people that you know are Pisces is they feel intensely and they carry you know that hurt around for a while I mean you know you know me for most of my relationships and that's a definite big trait with me like I carry that hurt for years yeah. and I could definitely see Kurt feeling that way you know it had already been a couple of years you know he hadn't been with um toby vale and you know he's still carrying around that hurt and he's just like you know what no I, I just need to chill right now i need to get this band you know in the right direction you know i got contrary on my art and he would like stiff armor but she kept pursuing him yeah and it's weird you say that because I, I thought about this too and i was like i wonder I, I feel like sometimes breakups are easier when like someone's clearly like the asshole like you could, could definitely convince yourself like that person's in the wrong uh-huh. and like in this situation like neither of them were in the wrong like their careers are just going different it's like you know you get a job in a different city you gotta take the job you gotta take that risk but at the same time it's like the person that you love and they've done nothing wrong is in a different city like they were in that situation where it's like ooh, this isn't gonna work out uh-huh. but and i think he was in that situation like he never really got over that yeah and like you know corny very aggressive very persistent like is like we're gonna be a power couple now <laughs> and like <laughs> and like really push towards that you know like and eventually they did they did <laughs> they started dating yeah and um yeah they ended up marrying each other too yeah. and i think a lot has to do with the fact the reason why you know it did go that extra step is that kurt very much like his mom was like okay I, this is the girl i'm dating at this time you know might as well get married to her. Can't let this one get away because she was very driven. That's one thing you positively you can say about Courtney Love. She's very driven. She gets shit done. You know, um, you said that, you know, she sued her parents for $1,000. Somehow, some way, this junkie, because she was, a you know, somebody that had been addicted to heroin and then beat it, according to her, you know, before she met Kurt. And, you know, somehow is still making things happen. You know, she was in movies at this time. Um, she's in a band that's about, you know, on the cusp of, you know, going somewhere, uh, because she knows how to get stuff done, whether, you know, she sucks the right dick or dates the right guy, you know, Billy Corgan, Trent Reznor, Kurt Cobain. Um, it, she knows how to get stuff done. And this is what Kurt wanted. You know, he wanted somebody that was, you know, equally driven as him, you know, not like the first girlfriend was just content to being somebody, you know, basic in Aberdeen, but at the same time, not somebody so unmaternal as, you know, uh, Toby Vale, because that was a big complaint he said too, is just like she had all the drive, but just none of that maternal instinct that he wanted. So Courtney, in, in my mind, and then the, my theory is too, had both of those qualities, he or she, so he thought that she had, you know, the maternal quality, but the drive of both of his previous girlfriends. And then when you watch this HBO documentary, his mom pops up, and, you know, Courtney Love obviously pops up too during the interviews they look a lot alike so that's a common thing too with mm-hmm. people that have you know mommy and daddy issues and whatnot is that they tend to find people that are just like their parents that have you know um done some kind of emotional harm to them you know they uh, they're attracted to people just like that parent yeah and i look at corny love and i look at his mom and goddamn, if they could, if they could be sisters, you know. <laughs> That's creepy. That is creepy. Um, 
But, you know, speaking of maternal instincts, like, they have a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your name? Like Benel- Francis Bean. <laughs> Vanilla Bean. Vanilla Bean. <laughs> Bean Francis. <laughs> they have a baby. And, you know, like, for a while, things are going really well for them. You know, like, mm-hmm. they're married. They're the, they're the big, two of the biggest rock bands in one. You know, they're dating. They're, you know, they're... They're what people dream of being, you know. They're mm-hmm. the fucking Kardashians before the Kardashians. They're, <laughs> they're Jay Z, Jay- Beyonce, Jay- Beyonce before Jay Z and Beyonce. You know, minus all the bullshit of the Kardashians. But you know, like they were there. They were mm-hmm. big celebrities. They were all about MTV News and like, I, you know. But things quickly start turning sour. Like they're, it's very noticeable that Kirk ain't feeling this shit. <laughs> like, yeah. And one of the one of the things that I one of, I don't know if you saw this, but I guess when they were in Rome, yeah, um, it's a big one right here. Uh, wait, no, I don't want to get to that one yet. New York, um, is I, it New York? When Kirk calls his lawyer and says like, "Hey, this is like right before a show." He's like, "Hey, I want to like put out a a will for my life, but I want to make sure Courtney doesn't get anything if I die. Only mm-hmm. my daughter gets things if if I die." And so already that's kind of like a red flag. Like, why would uh-huh. you want, you know, if, if you're really in love with this person, why would you want her out of your will completely? Yeah. And I think a lot of this has to do because, okay, this is in the time frame in between, you know, Nevermind, which, you know, blows up to be one of the biggest records of all time. Um, and, you know, in utero. And there's a big gap in between these two albums where Nirvana doesn't do anything. And according to Courtney, what that gap was all they about. They do release Insecticide. Oh, that's true. Which isn't that good. <laughs> but in the general scheme of things, they he, they take a big hiatus from touring and whatnot. And the narrative is that, oh, you know, Kurt hated, you know, the fame. You know, you mentioned it earlier you, that he would go up to people. And it got to the point where, like, his even the fans, quote, unquote, um, you know, those, you know, fair weather fans and whatnot, you know, they, they, they weren't really real fan, fans. And, you know, you hear that, you know, in the Unplugged album where he's like, this is all for a first record. A lot of people don't have it. Um, He started, like, the narrative is is he started to hate the fame. But the thing was is that he and Courtney started to really go down that dark path of heroin. And I believe he said that, you know, he wanted to make $3 million and then just become a junkie. And this is where that documentary shows a lot of, like, crazy footage of, like, just Kurt just, like, in his house, like, this mansion, this beautiful home. And it looks like a pigsty. It looks like, you know, bums have been squatting there. And it's just like, you know, there's crap all over the walls. There's, you know, hamburger wrappers everywhere. It just looks like a bum squatting there, basically. And, you know, Kurt and Courtney are just, like, strung out on heroin. And you kind of see, and I, I admit this this documentary is very biased towards Courtney. But you do see Courtney, you know, trying to say, hey, Kurt, we can't keep doing this. You know, this is, this we can't keep doing this. And Kurt's like, no, that's fine. I can quit any day typical junkie behavior you know quick background about me i have an uncle that's just like that just very addicted to drugs very addicted to heroin and when he was in a very depressive state he almost died because of that and you you see this you start to see all these traits where it's just like kurt kind of is just like going down this dark path of depression and drug abuse and drug addiction and you do see, you know, Courtney follow that a little bit and then try to bring him out of it a little bit. And there's one instance, that's the one I thought you were going to go down, where I guess like in the 90- The Rome incident? No, this actually the first incident. Oh, yeah. In 93 in New York, before a Nirvana show, um, he's overdosed basically on heroin. And just like Pulp Fiction, Courtney has to fucking um, give him a shot of adrenaline or something or nalox, naloxine or whatever I wrote down here. 
and he gets up like immediately just like like pulp fiction like uma thurman Pro- yeah. pulp fiction goes up there and you know business as usual you know plays the show and then collapses afterward obviously mm-hmm. though but um you know dave grohl chris novoselic they would say that a lot like it would be a lot of up and down um behavior with him where it's just like he would go into these dark areas of his mind where he would just not be there you know and that's depression that's yeah. straight up just depression and when depression has you it's almost like some kind of like dark figure just holding you by the neck and then they said he would just shut down and then when he would come out of it he would go absolutely manic you know and this is like where you'd get really creative and whatnot and then get really addicted to heroin because he would get so manic that he didn't know how to come down yeah i mean I think that as far as that documentary goes, I, I do think that it's kind of tricks. Tr- it's kind of a lot of trickery. Mm-hmm. And just because I have heard things that like he b- would buy like $400 worth of heroin in one day. And, mm-hmm. and you know, although he would buy it and I'm not saying that he would spend it all on himself, like he would just buy it. But there's also reports that corny love was almost like not addicted to heroin. Like she would buy like $20 worth of heroin and like not even use it. It reminded me a lot of when we were talking about Charles Manson. Like Charles Manson would give acid to everyone else, but he wouldn't take any, or he would take like a very small dose. Good point. Yeah. Where like he just had enough where he could keep somebody un- under his control to the point where they're on drugs and they'll just follow me, do whatever I want, and you know they think I'm also taking the drugs, but I'm mm-hmm. not involved in this. So it reminded me a lot of that. But you know he also goes through that huge one in in Rome where he like yeah um I I believe it was um. I believe it was champagne, and I guess I mean the story varies. If you talk to Courtney, Rodinol is that what it's Ruhypnol, Rufies, yeah, Rufies, yeah, Rufies. The date rape drug. Courtney says he took about sixty of them. Other people say it was like twenty. Well, the doctor, doctor himself said it was like a lot less than all those numbers. Yeah. So uh, that's another one of those things where it's like it's really hard for me to believe a lot of the things that Courtney says, mm-hmm. just because Courtney really starts feeling you know we'll get more and more into it but courtney and what we're talking about like she has the money she has all these junkies around her you know but at the same time she's not really using she's just kind of keeping all these junkies around her that are very loyal to her because she's the supplier like you have that one friend that's giving you shelter and food and drugs and like what why else why would i turn my back on this person like they're Mm -hmm. giving me everything i want um even her bass player, I believe, too, who died, I believe, a, a week after him, he, she was a big heroin user, and I believe she OD'd on heroin a week after uh, Kirk's death. Wasn't uh, Courtney also accusing her of or of Kirk cheating, yeah. cheating on her with that bass player? But a lot of it, I think, has to do, and I think this is why Kurt was going down that route of like removing uh, Courtney from everything. A lot of that, a lot, because you see this a lot with you know women like Courtney. Um, I'm trying to use my words as best as I can here. You see that a lot, like with um, very flirtatious women who, um, not to slut shame, who are very generous. You with can say their, promiscuous. Yeah, there you go. Men very, can be promiscuous too. Yeah, per, very promiscuous women. Um, when you put them on the spot, you know, for cheating, and this is what I believe this was. Um, they kind of turn around and mirror you, their insecurities. You know, I had a girlfriend that was like that too. I caught her in the mailroom <laughs> of my job cheating on me one time with my own boss. And she accused me of having, you know, multiple girlfriends on Facebook. And I'm like, bitch, I'm, you're the only one I'm fucking. Like, what the hell are you talking about? You fucking my boss in the back room. 
But anyway, that's Dang, that's deep, man. Yeah, no, but I mean, <laughs> just to give it some kind of semblance, though. But like Courtney, we talked about it. You know, she's over here to get what she wants. She, in her own words, she said she would flirt with a chair, and she's according to Courtney, the Rome incident is because she thought about cheating on Kurt, yeah, with somebody, and he starts showing you where her mind is, though. Like it's very self-centered, very yeah. like about me, me, me kind of thing. And somehow, psycho, psych, uh, psych, psychically, Kurt got wind of that, that, oh, Courtney was thinking about cheating on me and, like, got really depressed. But that tells you something right there. Nobody, you know, is going to think that, and then all of a sudden that other person is going to get depressed because of that. No, something tells me that Courtney, you know, she was probably flirting with Billy Corgan or Trent Reznor or somebody else in the industry to get and what she wanted. Did you see that Billy Corgan interview where he's talking to Joe Rogan? No. Oh, so, yeah, 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 actually, And yeah. he's like, uh, there are things that people haven't asked me about it, but I was there before, I was there during, and I was there after. And he made it sound like, what What are you, like, what are you talking about, man? But he made it sound like he was, like, banging her, like, yeah. during that whole thing. And, it, you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of dudes were, like. Oh, I can totally see it. So, like, <sighs> just so shady. It's really hard for me to trust her. But. And something tells me that, yeah, Kurt was very depressed about that. He probably, because you can sense that. You know what I'm saying? When somebody's not being true to you, he's already hurt, you know, over his whole childhood. He's hurt over, you know, previous relationships not working out. And this is supposed to be the, you know, my wife, the mother of my child. This is supposed to be the be all end all. This is finally supposed to be that happy home that I I should be living in now. I have all the money. I have all the fame. I have everything that I want, but I'm just not happy. I'm not satisfied with it. And I can see this as um, the Rome incident being something of a test run you know for my theory is you know i believe you know he did commit suicide but i believe this is kind of like a test run like where it's just like well i hear if you mix these two together you you know you could you know potentially kill yourself i want to see if i'm able to do this it it sounds a lot like to me it's a test run for suicide as opposed to an actual suicide attempt i do one of the things I, i wanted to bring up is you know he at this point, he's like a very hardcore feminist. You know, we talked about a little bit of the Insecticide album. And on the Insecticide album, um, not only does he do all the artwork on it, so all the artwork that you see on that, that's all him. Um, but he also writes a note inside the the the, the booklet. And the, on the booklet, it says, um, if you're um, a homophobe, if you're anti-women, don't even listen to our band. Don't, oh, listen, yeah. don't come to our show. And so, like, he's very, you know, he's still on that whole, like, bikini kill, like, feminist power kind of thing and um i think for him at at this point it's like it would be hard for him to be like man like i'm like this very like feminist like i got your back kind of thing and at the same time like courtney's kind of a bitch to me like yeah like you know lack of a better word like courtney kind of treats him like crap i believe one of the things that she would always say to him was um she would call him a dumbass? Oh, I'm trying to think. I wrote it down. It was like a very like vulgar thing that she would always call him. Um, but she had like a sp- very specific thing that she would always call him and like very demeaning towards him mm-hmm. and like very like always making him feel like shit. Like he was an idiot. She would always tell everyone that Kirk couldn't catch a taxi by himself. Like he was that dumb that he wouldn't be able to do it. Like, See, sir- that's fucked up because like at this time he's really super addicted to heroin and you, you see the videos of um, Courtney trying to cut um, Francis's hair and, you know, Kurt's strung out. You see the video of it on heroin. 
And this is somebody with a problem that needs help, you know, and you're kind of, I, I mean, I, I can try to put myself in her shoes where it's just like, okay, you're, you're trying to be supportive, but at the same time, she does that, like where she demeans him, she, she calls him names. It's very, very childlike uh, behavior where it's just like, okay, you're adults now, you know, yeah. you're in your late twenties at this point like you should know that this isn't how you get somebody help by demeaning them you know like that's going to do the opposite they're not going to want to help themselves and you know she's sitting there like god damn it cart you fucking idiot blah, blah, blah. how dare you you know and it's just like he obviously has a problem and another thing we didn't touch on too is that he had um stomach stomach, stomach issues issue. and some people didn't believe the stomach issues they just thought oh no that's just him being you know you know heroin sick you know you know for the drugs but his first girlfriend um tracy she said no he's he's had that for a very long time and i believe that because they said that he had a problem like it stems from something in your back like those nerve endings in your back Yeah, different people have said different things like it could be a pinched nerve it could be um like an unformed ulcer. So it's not an ulcer that you can treat. So when the ulcer is not completely formed, you can't treat it. Mm-hmm. So, cause it's not bleeding, but it's just causing a lot of pain constantly to the point where you can't eat. We talked to, um, Ross Robinson in that episode, we talked about Daryl from Glassjaw and like yeah. how Daryl from Glassjaw was in so much pain that like when did, when they were doing that first album, like he had just gone to the hospital and they thought he could die. Like he, he literally came out of the hospital he was dying. His girlfriend left him, and he did that because literally, like people thought, this guy's not gonna make it. Like, there's no glass jaw. This guy's gonna bleed to death in the hospital. And he survived, luckily, but it is a very serious thing. Like, it's you know, like bleeding from the stomach and not being able to eat. Like, you know, like that's eat. hell. Yeah, yeah. And I could see how like heroin would be that like little bit of remedy of like, okay, cool. I can't feel anything. Cool. Because that's what it basically does. Heroin. It, it numbs you. It, it takes away that pain. My uncle, who I mentioned, you know. It, very hardcore he was a drug addict um i guess you could say he still is um he he deals with a lot of you know physical pain due to you know a certain you know genetic condition that he has um with his legs and his back and whatnot and he's lost complete feeling in one leg at one point and it has a lot to do with you know like a sciatic nerves just you know dying and the only thing he said that would help him were opioids that you know got prescribed to him and then when they wouldn't prescribe him enough that he needed, that's when he started looking on the streets for what he needs. And that mirrored exactly what was happening to Kurt. He's living in a time frame now where it's just like, you know, I guess he went to somebody to get ibuprofens <laughs> and he couldn't get like uh, a strong enough uh, prescription. So he goes, no, I got something way better than this. It's, you know, take this heroin and it'll take all your pain away. And that's what he essentially was trying to use it for you know, it was to cure the stomach pain, which Tracy said that he had had during their time together before he, all he would do, you know, in front of her was smoke weed. That's all he knew him to do was, you know, to smoke weed and drink beer. Those were his only vices that, and if he did do heroin, it wasn't in front of her at all, but he did, you know, suffer from extreme, you know, stomach pain and extreme nightmares. And, you know, for a while they had one of their former drug dealers living with them for a while that, Callie, who becomes an important figure later on, who is also one of Courtney Love's ex-boyfriends. Also. Really? Yeah, he was also living. He was a family friend, but he was also Courtney Love's like ex-boyfriend. That's weird. So, isn't that also weird that like you call this dude a dumbass? Like you're always putting him down. By the way, like you know, if your girlfriend was like, by the way, my ex-boyfriend's gonna move in. 
don't worry, we're not doing anything. Wouldn't that still be weird? Like, yeah, it would. There's no like point where it'd be like, I guess I trust her kind of thing. It's weird. Like mm-hmm. this dude that used to like bone the same girl that you're boning is like moving in. Like that's just too weird. Like, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that Kelly character that you know he'll become a bigger figure later on, but he. You was know, he the Manny? Because I saw that there was a Manny, like a, a nanny, a man nanny. No, the uh, the Manny was the person. Oh, wait, maybe. The one that would take care of Bean. Francis. Francis Bean. Bean. I keep calling her. I want to call her. Um, Mrs. Bean. <laughs> Mrs. Bean. But yeah, I mean, like, he becomes he becomes a bigger figure, but he was always at the house. like. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the way he's portrayed. And there's another movie where they just focus on Kurt Cobain's last days. Uh-huh. And, you know, we'll talk about one of the notes that he leaves him, but he does leave him a note. And it's like, I, in my opinion, that was like the most bullshit-ass note. But anyways, let's go back to the, the point where we're at. Let's go back to Easter Sunday, because this is really where, like, shit hits the fan. Uh-huh. So Easter Sunday... Courtney Love calls a private detective. Basically calls him. Um, his name is Tom Grant. He calls Tom Grant and says, hey, my husband, he's very famous. Um, I'm looking for a, uh, an investigator. Somebody stole his credit card. I just need you to come down here and, like, talk to me because we can't do this over the phone because my husband's very famous. So he's like, mm, this is kind of weird. And then, like, his, his like, like assistant is like, Courtney Love, the the rock musician? Like, what the hell? So then they go down there together and they're doing this like total like creeped out because they don't know if this is re- the real Courtney Love or they're, they're yeah, getting they're, fucking you pumped. Know, if this is really her. So like they start recording everything. Everything is being recorded from this point on because he doesn't I trust her. So um, they show up with tape recorders and she's like changing her story left and right. She starts saying that his wallet was stolen and she thinks that someone's using it to no one's seen him for a few days and he's totally suicidal and he has a shotgun and then but she's like but we need to get a hold of that like credit card or something like that and she's like whoa you just told me he's suicidal and he's a shotgun why are you not more focused on that and these are all like his recordings like his private recordings of like Mm -hmm. her like but at the same time she could be on heroin or she's total scatterbrained so you know like we can always meth or something yeah we don't know what the fuck she was on you know i saw her open up for deftones once with hole god damn she sucks live but she could have been on heroin too so yeah <laughs> I, I know at this time frame too um and and i tried to use a lot of sources that you know cited you know dave Grohl and chris novoselic you know the people closest to him at this time other than courtney and it like i kind of and kind of like with the charles manson thing where like that's super scatterbrained you got people on lsd or whatever like, I try to see, okay, what makes sense in the whole scheme of things when people's stories, you know, coincide with each other. So, I guess at this time, too, you know, when she's getting the um, the PI, um, Tom Grant, you know, they do hold an intervention. And maybe what I'm thinking is Tom might have, you know, called for that or woke her up to that fact that he needs help. This is the help that he needs. And... Um, I guess Kurt locked himself in, in a room and, like, was... And this is typical, you know... Um, junky behavior you know blaming oh i could stop anytime i want i'm just using it for you know my uncle did the same T- thing tom too. grant never has any interaction with kurt cobain oh really yeah okay so yeah i the only thing i know is just that you know dave was there chris novoselic was there some other family friends were there you know and they held an intervention and then uh, you know that might have been prior because he does he does check himself into a rehab for a while and like he 
um, I believe his daughter is with him. Like keeps the, somebody's bringing his daughter to to mm-hmm. visit him in rehab, like in a daily thing. Oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And he does get out, and he comes out clean at this point. You know, he comes out of rehab clean. But at this point, you know, Kurt, Courtney Love is like convinced he's gonna divorce me. Like, oh, you know what? Because I have it written down. So Rome happened March first of nineteen ninety four. So mm-hmm. this is all important. Uh, nineteen ninety four. So March 1st is the Rome incident, you know, where he overdoses on the Ruhypnol, you know, whether it was a suicide attempt or Courtney Love put the roofies mm-hmm. in there to kill him, you know, I guess. Um, but March 18th, that's where uh, Courtney calls the police um, and says that, you know, hey, Kurt's locked himself um, in his room. Um, he's suicidal and he has guns. And then, the you know, the, the police come out. And I believe in between this time, March 18th and the 25th, that's where she calls um, Tom Grant. And that's where Tom Grant does the recordings is after the 18th because they've already taken away his guns and whatnot. And I believe um, after yeah. she talks with Tom Grant, you know, that's when they hold the intervention. And um, he has a friend um, by him, that the infamous shotgun that will come into <laughs> the picture later on. Uh, you mean Kirk's friend? The um, Let me find him. Um what is his, what is Kirk's friend's name? <laughs> but I mean, at this point, Courtney Love does file a missing persons report, mm-hmm. where she doesn't file it as herself; she files it as Kurt Cobain's mom. And oh wow! So he files it as Kirk, and this becomes really important later on once like this whole thing is like unraveling. But she calls the police and says like, "Yo, I'm Kurt Cobain's mom. He's been missing for a few days." Um, she gets a hold of the private investigator. At this point, the private investigator yeah. flies out to Seattle. So this is days before they find his body. Mm-hmm. So he flies out to Seattle, um, trying to find out what his name is. The Well, um, March 30th, that's where he goes to uh, the recovery center in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And um, he's there. That's where you said, like, he's there with his daughter and whatnot. And um, he escapes the next night. And then everybody thinks that, like, oh, shit, like, we're, what happened to him? But I guess, like, he got, in a fl- got on a flight from LAX to Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess he sat right next to um, the bass player for Guns N' Roses, Duff McKagan. Now, we mentioned mm-hmm. that earlier. You know, him and Axel had, like, a big beef. Um, but I guess, like, according to Duff McKagan, you know, he had, like, a long conversation with Kurt, you know. And Duff, he was a, he's a recovering, you know, heroin addict himself. You know, they talked about, you know, getting clean and he talked about, you know, releasing a new record and whatnot and how he admired, you know, works of his and whatnot. And it's just like, hey, you like before they left the plane, I guess, like Duff said, like, hey, man, good luck, man. Hope you stay clean. You know, hope yeah. to do some music with you um, later on down the road. And this is where, you know, Courtney, after he, he jumps basically the bushes over the the recovery center in L.A., this is where Courtney um files that missing persons report yeah and you know it's weird you say that because at this point there's also like this rumor that's going around that he's gonna kind of leave nirvana and then potentially like start working with rem which is really weird but because like, wasn't okay yeah michael stipe too that was another person that was linked to courtney love as well yeah so like he was i guess he wanted to like record music with michael stipe or something but michael stipe is gay he's, is he he's the lead singer of, of rem yeah but he's know. he's also gay like he's very publicly like out of the closet so, oh and that's probably why <laughs> courtney and him have beef now is because like he so what a fucker <laughs> yeah i don't know it's pretty weird but anyways yeah that the uh tom grant flies to seattle right at this point like boots on the ground yeah and so courtney sets him up was like hey one of um one of his best friends dylan carson is there in seattle go. and dylan carson 
is the guy who bought the shotgun for for him. And so he's doing the interview initially with with Dylan Carson. Dylan Carson's like, he's not suicidal. I don't know where this is coming from. He's like, totally fine. Which you know, a lot of people say that. I hear a lot of you know in that documentary I watched, people bring that up. But I always think that you know when someone is suicidal, you can't really see. You, there's nothing you can. They're gonna see. put an act on for him. And then those home videos you're watching. I, I swear to God, Kurt Cobain could be the best stand-up comedian of all time uh, during this time period because there's a point where, like, Courtney's, like, reading fan mail or whatever and, like, somebody's totally being a bitch and, you know, telling her off in this letter. And Kurt is doing, like, the most the funniest thing ever where he's mimicking uh, Courtney Love and he even has, like, a little um, uh, thing of lipstick around him and <laughs> stuff and whatnot. And he has his hair, like, all messy like her. And he's like totally like making fun of her and whatnot, but he's totally manic. Like that's manic depression. Yeah. And but you're absolutely right. That's what I kept thinking because a lot of people, like even his mom, uh, Chris from you know Nirvana, like they're all saying like, no, he it didn't seem like he was suicidal at this time. But you're not gonna want to put that out there unless like you're wanting attention on this. I would say like ninety percent of people that commit suicide. You don't see it coming. I mean, you look at even famous people like Anthony Bourdain and mm-hmm. Bourdain, 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 and like you look at like Chester from Lincoln Park, exactly. and you look at Chris Cornell. These are people that, you know, people will make the argument like, oh, he just had a daughter and he's doing really well financially. Those are not the things that go through someone's mind when there's depression. Like mental illnesses, it's like forget all the logical things. You know, this isn't, you know. This isn't like, you know, someone passed away, therefore I'm sad, or I'm going through a breakup and I just lost my job, therefore I'm sad. You know, a lot of times, you know, uh, you know DeMar DeRozan, he used to play for the Raptors, he plays for the Spurs now, but he has like this really, like, amazing interview where he talks about his depression, he opens up and he he talks about how a lot of people are like, why would you be depressed? Like, you know, you're making millions of dollars, you're playing the NBA, you're on an all-star team, like, what do you have to be depressed about? And he's like, people don't get it. Like, it's those quiet moments when you're alone that will drive you insane, that no one's there. The, those are the moments that, like, really want to make you, like, blow your brains out. And, like, no one's there for those, you know? Like, those are the moments, you know, those, like, if you have, you know, eight what? hours with coworkers and laughing and all this stuff, and you can go through those, it's, like, those other eight hours that are dark and lonely mm-hmm. that you just want to, like, destroy every thought in your mind. And, you know, like, we've talked – I. I talked to Eric about this is one of those things that like me and Eric would kind of go separate where we would be like, yo, like there's some um, like demons. Like, you know, we talked about, you know, we, we each kind of battle like a different, like little demon, me and Eric kind of thing. And like, it's very different cause it, for, it's different for every single person, but it's like, it's a very like personal thing. And a lot of times, like I could see how he wouldn't want to talk to his friends and family about it. You know, like mm-hmm. he would, it's ashamed. easier to talk to a stranger than it is to talk to a friend or family about these things. So I can see why friends and family would be like, he didn't seem suicidal to me kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, cause you don't want people that you love to f- be down cause of you, you know, like you don't want another reason to be feel sad, you know, yeah, bring them down along with yeah. you. And another thing too, that kept <coughs> popping up in every documentary that I would see is just like Kurt hated to be ashamed or hated, you know, to let people down and I could totally see that. Like, if he's suicidal, if he's dealing with this humongous demon, and this is somebody that feels intensely, and he, he you, you just hit the nail on the head, he would rather probably spill that out, you know, to a stranger than his own family. You know, it, he is not going to show signs to you 
that he's suicidal. He's going to put up a happy front to make you think, oh, everything, you know, is honky-dory. And you see that in the first half of the letter, you know, that, hey, you know, I'm just not feeling the music anymore. Like, it's just, it's a lot of pressure. You know, my a lot of other people's happiness basically depends on me. And, you know, and I can't even make myself happy basically is what I was reading, you know, yeah. in my mind or interpreting in my mind from that letter. So, I mean, let's start getting that to that point. So the, the private detective starts going through. He he goes to visit a cabin that him and Courtney, Courtney, Courtney mm-hmm. own. And then he visits the home. He visits the home twice to find nothing. But he finds drugs at one point, And then he finds a note that Callie left there for him. And he's just like, you're such a fuck up. Like, you need to call Courtney um courtney love i want to keep wanting to say courtney love but uh he's like you need to give her a call like shit's hit the fan she's not doing well like you're such an asshole she loves you how dare you to me that letter feels really forced mm-hmm. in the sense that like like it's a total guilt trip kind of letter yeah and that's one of those things that like this cali guy to me like checks off so many like red flags of like i don't trust this fucking guy but anyways you know um <clears throat> We, if you want to fast forward to obviously Kurt Cobain does commit suicide, yeah, or you know we believe that he commits suicide. Yeah, the the actual um, narrative is yeah he committed suicide. So I guess his body is discovered April fifth, or no, it's discovered April eighteenth, and they think that the body was actually laying there for a couple of days because he's found by an, uh, an electrician that was there to install security lights, mm-hmm. and I guess he was found um, in a greenhouse above the garage, and. Yeah. I think it's behind the garage. Okay. So when the private investigator goes to check out the house, he's in there with um, Dylan, and Dylan is doing a tour of the entire house, and he keeps asking him, so this is all the rooms, right? And they keep going at nighttime to make sure that Kirk's going to be there asleep, but they never find Kirk. And so, you know, that's that's also another reason why Tom... Tom Grant gets a lot of shit because he's a dude that was at his house twice and never found the body. But it's, you know, it's like, what a shitty private detective. You're in the... You're in the home, but you never find the body. I will point this out about him, and I'm not trying to talk shit, but I believe Tom Grant used to be a, a sheriff officer, and I wanted to see why. And I guess some sources say that he wasn't cutting it as a sheriff, mm-hmm. and so that's why he became a private um, a PI, basically. But there were so I saw a lot of things. He he left on pretty good standings. It's not like he got fired for like fucking molesting a kid or something <laughs> like he left in pretty good standings it's not like he was you know he was overweight and he was looked like he could have been really lazy <laughs> but um he was kind of ahead of his time in the sense that he was recording everything and you know um and you know to his credit a lot of people point out that at nighttime you can't see anything in his backyard like it was mm-hmm. raining and it was like seattle nighttime he had no lights back there and that's why they had to have the electrician come out and yeah install lights yeah so the electrician comes out the electrician does not call the police right away. He calls the radio station and what s- the fuck? Yeah, so he does. He doesn't call the police. He calls the radio station and says, "Whatever the Seattle like Seattle crab radio." <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, um, the real Bruce Wayne. I have some information, but I need you guys to promise me that whenever Bon Jovi comes into town next, I need two front row tickets. And they're like, "What? What are you talking what about?" What the fuck? He's like, "I have information that." Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of Nirvana, has has uh, been killed or has killed himself. And then he calls the police. So he actually calls the local radio station first. That's shady. To try to get from fucking Bon Jovi tickets. 
before he calls the police. God damn it, dude. That yeah, fucking disappoints me so bad. Like, dude, it's so shitty. It like totally points out like the flaws in like human, human like thought process of like, dude, this dude is dead and you're trying to score some Bon Jovi tickets. That's fucking horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty shitty, dude. Um, but yeah, so police show up and then this is this is where that you know i talked about earlier how courtney love had filed a missing persons report Mm -hmm. so a missing persons report is filed mtv news picks up and starts reporting it as um kurt cobain's mom had filed this report nobody follows up with the fact that it was courtney love later on it comes out that it's courtney love but as soon as the police show up they don't take fingerprints um for Mm -hmm. because you don't take fingerprints at suicides and you don't develop pictures of suicides. So a lot of time, so I think a few pictures have been developed over the time because because the the Seattle Police Department has been like pressed to develop some photos. Yeah, I guess there's some the the initial ones are just like the polaroids. Yeah. And I guess like a couple of years ago like they said they found four um rolls and like they've slowly been releasing some of them, but uh Francis and Courtney have sued like the police department from ever like showing the actual body pictures mm-hmm. because um and I, I mean I can see why from, yeah, Fa- from I, I Francis could, I could see from Francis's perspective as well but she said like emotionally like I've already seen some pictures you know just stumbling cuz obviously her name's always going to be attached to you know Kurt Cobain you know she go she she told the court that you know eventually I'm going to accidentally stumble upon these and this is not something emotionally that I can handle so that's the reason why those pictures haven't been actual like death death pictures haven't been released yeah so one of the things that they they um always point out in the the Seattle Police Department would talk about how um there's they wrote up a report that said that there was a chair that was blocking the entrance mm-hmm. of the initial initial like entrance to the to the greenhouse that he was lying in but then there was another report that said there was a there was just a chair in the room next to Mm -hmm. where kurt cobain was and so you know what that's one of the things that a lot of people question of like wait was there a chair blocking or was just was it just there it almost seemed like kurt cobain was just sitting there like possibly writing a note if some or somebody was sitting there writing a note and then people were just like, well, that chair must have been there to block the, the entrance. So there's a lot of conflicting reports of whether there was a chair actually blocking that thing. And that thing, too, was um, the, the PI, uh, Tom Grant, and other people have been disputing as well, is that you can only lock the doors from the inside. And I guess Tom is disputing that, that you can't. And then I tried to look up... Um, well, they the, the reason why they're doing that is because it's like one of those very simple locks. And I'm sure most people can visualize this lock of like you locking a, uh, the little turn thing and then closing it behind you uh-huh. and now it's locked most yeah. people leave their house their front doors and that's how you lock your door you know you lock it and then you like slam your door shut now it's locked yeah that doesn't mean that somebody locked it from the inside it means that you could have done it yourself and that's what he was disputing like it was very quickly determined that he locked himself in there when it's like where well, somebody locked it and then closed the door behind them like that's what he's disputing like mm-hmm. this isn't as open and shut as like as he believes that it is but at the same time like you know i can see how a police department shows up dude's holding a shotgun in his hand and it's like his brains are blown out they mm-hmm. test him and he has like three times the amount that a heroin addict would have in his system you know mm-hmm. like so this is a high amount of heroin in his system but let's talk about the shotgun because the shotgun is the other thing that people will point out that is abnormal about it. Uh-huh. So the shotgun is facing in a direction where the 
the shell would be facing to his right hand side. So if you if you shoot a shotgun, the shell always flies to the right hand of whatever you're aiming at. Unless you have it flipped backwards, which is where the shotgun shell was. So it was to his left side. Oh, okay. So the discharge of, bullet. Yeah. yeah, so the discharge discharge bullet, the shell was over to his left hand side. So a lot of people were saying, like, how did this happen? So either he shot it and it must have bounced off of something. Like it's a one in a million kind of shot of like that shell went to the wrong side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people have talked about how either his either the is his hand must have twisted and it fate like as he shot it, his hand would have twisted, but it would have twisted in a such an abnormal thing that it would have broke his wrist. Mm-hmm. So like you know, it doesn't that's really a twelve gauge shotgun, yeah, yeah. So it, it's very strange that 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 that's there. Also, possibility of like he shoots it and then this hand hits the bullet, your right hand hits the bullet, bouncing it to your left side, which is also a possibility. You know, it it it's possible, but you know, it's still weird that that this is all happening. You know, at this very high profile murder. Where, you know, no fingerprints were taken, nothing was, you know. And that's the thing, too, that I saw as well, is that there was no um, fingerprints on the shotgun to be lifted. Like, I guess they actually lifted some stuff <clears throat> off the note, and, like, there was, like, different fingerprints. Well, there's no fingerprints on the shotgun because no shotgun or no fingerprints were taken at the crime scene. Mm-hmm. So because of the suicide, they don't take fingerprints. Mm-hmm. So even at the, the little box, they never took Oh, the heroin box? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so they never took any fingerprints because they just assumed that it's a suicide. So once it's ruled a suicide, there's no need to do fingerprints. So that's why there's no no, um, no fingerprints (laughs) taken because no... No no foul play, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, let's get to the the suicide letter. The suicide letter is very interesting. I don't know if you have some of it written down or... No, I thought about, like having one of us read it or if we were going to have a third person on read it, but there's no, I, I feel like there's no need for it. I mean, it's, it's very much, I, you can definitely tell the conspiracy is, is that, you know, Kurt wrote the first three quarters of the note. And a lot of it has to do with like his, you know, hatred basically of himself and, you know, the fame and, you know, Nirvana and everything, you know, around it. And a lot of people interpret it as him leaving the music industry or leaving Nirvana or just doing something else mm-hmm. in general. Um, the way I took it was, it was just, it, it, it's his depression spilling out. I do and, think a lot of it is he wanted to leave Nirvana. And I know that that's hard for Nirvana fans to believe, but mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, he he didn't need Nirvana at this point. Like, he, he had done what he wanted to do and, like... And the artistically, too, it was like, it felt like it was getting out of his hands because we were talking before we started recording, but in utero... Um, I remember when that album came out, which I believe was three or four years after Nevermind, two different sounding albums completely. And I remember a lot of people, I mean, I I really like In Utero a lot. Um, you look at the reviews, it's five stars all the way around. Um, but a lot of people con- during that time concurrently were disappointed in it because it wasn't this, you know, happy Beatles meets Black Sabbath and Black Flab, Black flag you know um mashup it wasn't easily digestible either you're in within it's very within the genre and you could tell that was eating at him that like people were misunderstanding his his art and his art was his everything and you could tell that there was a lot of that a lot you like anybody that's dealt with depression you can really pick out that like yeah like what we were just talking about like he was really focusing on that so the conspiracy is is that he wrote the, the the first 
three-fourths of this letter. Now, the last fourth of the letter, that's where it starts to get a little fishy because you see the handwriting change a little bit, and it focuses more on Francis and especially Courtney. Yeah, and not just that the handwriting changes, but also the overall writing style changes. You know, mm-hmm. you, you talk about how all of a sudden it's this very, like, this isn't that important to me kind of thing. Well, let me talk about what is really important to me. And it's like Francis and Courtney. Like, it's very, like, this is the most important to me thing ever. And, yeah, the the handwriting changes. One of our favorite shows, Unsolved Mysteries, has a very famous episode where they talk about the handwriting of this of, the, of that suicide letter. Uh-huh. And, you know, this is one of those things. The first time I ever heard this was when Unsolved Mysteries covered this, and they talk about how their handwriting analysis was saying, this is a different person. Like, this is not the same mm-hmm. handwriting. And and it's not so much that the handwriting isn't the same. It's like the pressure points of where you start writing a letter. Like, let's say you naturally always write the, the letter A from one point. Is like this pressure point was starting at a different point that, you know, Kirk wasn't doing. Is that the heroin talking at this point? Is Maybe. that him starting a letter at a different point because he's on heroin? Possibly. Mm-hmm. It's possible. You know, I'm not a handwriting analysis. I don't know how the human brain works that well. Yeah, I'm not a handwriting analysis person either, but... I've, you know, I mean, I've smoked some weed a time or two in my life. This is, that's the other thing I want to talk about. Cause go ahead, go ahead and say what you're going to say. Cause I, I've, you know, when you smoke weed, you get very, I, I get really creative. I don't know what strands I'm smoking, but I get super creative and I'll start writing stuff. There was a time like I was in a band actually with Eric and like, that would be the only time like I would find myself like being able to write music is when i was high and so like my actual handwriting like you're seeing right here in front of me on my notes would be wildly different i actually have notebooks with some of that shit in there and you can't even tell it's my handwriting so when i'm looking at this i'm like okay you have somebody that injected three times the you know dosage that you know a junkie whoever's saying that um in his blood and so he's heavily medicated at this point you know so if he's writing it, I, you, we don't know when he actually wrote all of this down. Maybe he had some of it already written because it's very intelligent. The first three-fourths of it, it's yeah. very thoughtful. And then the last part of it is just like very like, all Slavic. right. Yeah, it's very like <laughs> it sums up everything that was most important in his life within three sentences. Yeah. You know, which is Kurt, which is Francis and uh, Courtney, which is weird. Yeah. You know, thinking about it, I remember one time, this is, you know, maybe too personal but at the same time i remember one time i was i was dating this girl and like she was all about like muscle relaxers and like painkillers and things like that and we were i was just like well i just smoke weed but at the same time like we started like mixing the both both mm-hmm. things and i remember one time like after we you know our relationship got a little bit shaky and like we weren't really seeing eye to eye like i still really enjoyed those like muscle relaxers to the point where like one time i like i passed out in a bathroom and i was just like dude i'm like in the public restroom just like lying there because like i can't do anything like i can't i can barely keep my eyes open like this is so numbing Mm -hmm. and i was thinking to myself like how can like three times this isn't three times the amount of heroin it would kill a person this is three times the amount a heroin addict would take who's saying that though because i saw that um that they didn't actually release the actual toxicology of it. Uh-huh. That was just some something that a newspaper. Yeah, that printed. is true. I did see that. So that was just based on that newspaper of of they were releasing that. So yeah. that I'm I'm not even sure. 
But at the same time, it's like he was definitely like on some type of drug. There were heroin needles there. There was heroin in diazepam as well. So, so my theory is like at this point, like wouldn't he just be like, dude, I'm going to doze off and like pass out and like not want to do anything. But at this point, like it was either totally premeditated and he really wanted to commit suicide and get the, sh- get the, sh- get the uh, shotgun and like put it to his face and. And even that was, like, risky because these shotgun shells, these are not the type of shotgun shells that can automatically kill someone. I believe these are called bird shells. Oh, yeah. So yeah. these are bird shells. Bird shells are They'll done. just pepper somebody yeah. up. Yeah, that's what you use. Um, just to reference this. I'm sorry I'm not referencing Joe Rogan here, not uh-huh. to disappoint you, but yeah. um, I was listening to uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin's uh, mm-hmm. podcast, and he was talking about the difference if you want to protect your home with a gun is you know you have shotgun shells that are bird shells mm-hmm. and then there's also um deer shells or whatever that'll blow that'll blow bear, some, bear shells or bear something? shells yeah. yeah that'll blow somebody you know clear in two like you know from the abdomen or whatever like yo yo I have them walking around with no legs no time yeah. but uh, a bird shell that'll just pepper somebody up yeah. like it'll it'll hurt them it'll be almost yeah. like um like a paintball gun, uh-huh. it'll it'll do more. It'll do da- yeah, more so damage than a paintball gun. But yeah, they were bird shells. There, there was no exit wound to his head. You know, it just basically like exploded within exploded his exploded and fucked up his face. So you know, he wasn't going to be on the cover of Spin magazine anymore. And um, what's crazy is is that the electrician that found him said that he didn't know he was dead. He thought he was just asleep uh-huh. at first because the only reason why he thought to check is he saw some blood coming out of his ear which I thought was weird. Like, okay, you have a 12 gauge shotgun, but that makes sense. Like, yeah. When you talk about like a bird shell, that's something totally different. Like, yeah, that, that would be enough to fucking, it, it could be possible that he could have survived that. Cause you, you do see that sometimes where people shoot themselves, <clears throat> um, in world war one and two or whatnot. Like a lot of people, um, in the trenches, you know, they, they would be stuck in the trenches and to get out of it, you know, instead of having the Germans or the Nazis fucking kill you, they would kill themselves, you know, by shooting themselves in the mouth. And some people would actually survive it and they would just Oof, be walking it's around. It's a terrible thing to survive. Yeah. Like, tell me about it. Like, I learned about this from my history teacher in I, high school. I went to school with the dude that shot himself in the face once. Oh, and like, shit. He did it. I don't know if he did it on purpose or if he was just on drugs and he did it. But, like, basically, like, half of his face was, like, fucking deformed. And, Ooh. like, like his skin was just off to, the, like a centimeter off to the wrong side and it oh. just it was very difficult to to stare him in the face i have um some fans slash friends of this podcast um we're in like kind of like a a dark web <laughs> chat uh-huh. where it's like a lot of that like a lot of pathology photos and whatnot and um autopsy photos of people that you know commit suicide and just other stuff too that's not the whole purpose of it but like you do see that a lot like people who shoot themselves like yeah and you know this person died by a shotgun um blast to the face and you know you'll see like half of their face missing because they put it up to their nose or their forehead but every time somebody has put a shotgun into their mouth or some kind of gun in their mouth it's 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 almost like i don't want to i hate to use this word clean it's almost like a clean death Mm -hmm. where it's like there's not a lot of mess it's pretty much like okay you see the x-ray of it you see where the bullet's at and it's like okay cut you know the spinal cord here or you know it it somehow ricocheted up into the brain you know and this is how the death occurred like it gets very in-depth with it and every time i would see these photos i would be like well okay that's probably what happened to kurt cobain 
because I, you always hear about that story about the electrician. He found him and he just thought he was asleep. Yeah. Well, I mean, not to go back to the uh, handwriting of that suicide note, but one of the other big things is um, eventually they do find that Courtney Love does have a letter-by-letter mm-hmm. letter, uh, like match of everything that Kurt Cobain has written. And this mm-hmm. is one of those things that her, I think her own agent or her own lawyer spills the beans on this. Yeah. And like accidentally says it on a recorded line, and then it's like, oh, fuck. Well, now that word's out and that they have this thing nothing comes of it but it is something to keep in note and like to keep in mind and you know there were little spec little things that people were saying that the reason she had this is because she you know she kind of had to manipulate his life to the point where like she had to sign checks for him yeah or like she had to do like they would write each other love letters with each other's handwriting which i think is weird and i call bullshit on that one i could i could totally see her writing checks for him and to the point, like, we need to pay the mortgage, and you make more money than me, so we're going to write in your handwriting. <laughs> I can see that more than I can see writing love letters to each other. Well, one thing, too, about that, I'm glad you brought that up, is um, a, lo- a lot of the conspiracy has to do with, like, Kurt was going to leave Courtney. Um, Kurt's lawyer even said that, like, yeah, he was, you know, making attempts to change the will. Because I guess there was a will that had him and um, had her and Francis in it. Um, and before, you know, all this was going to occur, all this occurred, um, he was making attempts to have Courtney removed from everything. And everything would just go to Francis. And then, you know, Francis would, you know, go with his actual mother um, instead of Courtney, you know, in the event of like his death and whatnot. Um, but then also talking to him, to her about that, like, yeah, like I'm going to leave her. Um, if I die, I want all of my royalties to go, you know, to Francis and to my mom and that Courtney was totally going to be cut out of everything. And that Courtney was, you know, the conspiracy goes, Courtney was like mad dashing, trying to figure out like, Hey, how can I preserve myself in his will? How can I still get, you know, Nirvana's, you know, his portion of Nirvana's royalties and whatnot. So that, that's where I I think a lot of people, you know, that can, that fuels that conspiracy that, you know, she had him killed. Because I think it's important to note, too, because you see a lot of people online, they talk about, like, oh, Courtney killed Kurt. Well, she was somewhere else at this time. I believe she was either in L.A. filming a movie or somewhere else. Her album was about to release. Actually, her album came out the day after they found his body. Oh, wow. That's fucking deep. But, yeah, she was out of town. And so the conspiracy would have to be that she had somebody else Mm -hmm. murder And that's where that Cali guy, a lot of times, people, people that believe that he was killed, I believe, I believe, okay, so here's this is my personal thing. Mm-hmm. I think Callie actually maybe helped him, like in an assisted suicide, kind of nudged him nudged mm-hmm. him in that, hey, we're doing heroin anyways, why don't you just like take more and more? And like, so I believe that although he was already doing heroin, and I do believe that he was going through a really deep state of depression. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, I do believe he was going through a point where like, I'm going to leave Courtney, I'm going to drop Nirvana, and I'm going to do my solo thing and just worry about me and my baby, and that's it. I'm just going to do this whole thing of, like, being, like, the solo artist. Because at one point, he talks about how he really idolized Johnny Cash and, like, how Johnny Cash was just, like, playing guitar by himself, and that's kind of what he wanted to do. Yeah. Do the Johnny Cash road. That's when Johnny Cash started to make a comeback, too. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, he really wanted to go down that Johnny Cash road. And so, 
you know, I could see how he would want to do that. And like, so I don't see, you know, I mean, and we don't know. I mean, depression is tricky that way. Depression is not, you know, straight out of road where we know exactly what's going on. It's like a roller coaster at Six Flags, baby. It goes up, it goes down, and just things you yeah. don't understand. Yeah, there's different things, and it, it's different for each person. And it's not a logical thing. It's not like, well, he everything is going right, so he's cool. You know, like, no, that's not exactly how depression works. You can have everything and still not want to go through it. But at the same time, I do think that that Kelly guy had a lot more than meets the eye. I think that maybe he maybe helped him inject more heroin that than he maybe wanted to inject himself with. And I think once it's like, dude, this guy's passed out, you know, putting a shotgun in someone's hand and like pulling the trigger isn't that hard to fake. Like mm-hmm. it's it you know and, and when you say that yeah because i was very much in the camp that you know i was going into this thinking like okay i studied both sides of it and i kind of believe yeah it was a suicide because there's only the two narratives where it's just like courtney hired someone to do it and then kurt committed suicide the you know actual narrative and so i can see that being like the the gray area too maybe he did commit suicide but it might have been an assisted suicide there might have been somebody else in the room kind of like that girl that um that encouraged her boyfriend to commit suicide and and not just that but this is the dude that used to date the same girl so mm-hmm. wouldn't it be like well he's out of the way now like me and courtney can be back together yeah and and like now we have this badass home and we have all his money that he used to have from all these nirvana albums and mm-hmm. courtney love still has that money by the way like yeah you know dave Grohl doesn't have that money he's making that foo fighter money now yeah but you know they're not making nirvana money like the way that courtney love is making she yeah. got to keep all the royalties to that, so that's how she was able to stay relevant. Yeah, yeah. How did? Yeah, wow. I never thought about that. Um, another thing too is that um, I'm sure you saw it, like in all of our fans. You've probably seen all the documentaries like Kurt and Courtney and whatnot. But there was a guy, a shock rocker named Eldon El Duce Hoke. Uh, yeah. I did see a little bit about this guy. He had a weird. Yeah, like <laughs> this guy seems shady, but I guess he was telling like the documentarian. He was like telling him like, yeah, Courtney came up to me and offered. Um, offered me $50,000 if I killed Kurt Cobain. I don't believe this guy. The only thing that makes me want to believe him is that doesn't he die? Like after he says this? Yeah, and so he says that he rejected the offer and that he actually does know the actual, you know, killer that actually did it. And he's, I guess he gives a name like Tom, but he goes, I'll never give you the full or whatnot or whatever. But he's kind of a shady character. And then, yeah, he does die. He dies. Um, he gets hit by a train in 1997. Uh, I guess he was like super drunk or whatnot, but um, Al Jorgensen, I believe, from Ministry said that, oh no, that wasn't because you know, you know, Courtney, you know, set that up like Suge Knight, <laughs> you know, to have him killed on the train track, is because he was like blasted out of his mind, drunk and high, and that some fans recognized him from the other side of the train tracks while the train was coming, and they were egging him on like, hey, outrun this train, and he was trying to outrun the train and got hit. I believe it, man. But he's kind of a douche fucking knuckle himself because, like, he's like one of those shock rockers that talk about like rape every five seconds. Like, it's kind of like yeah, I don't, I don't buy a low grade. And this to be low grade, well, the next thing I'm about to say is super low, like a low grade G.G. Allen. Like that's what he kind of reminds me of. G.G. Allen deserves his own episode. But yeah, man. I mean, where do you stand on this? I I feel like, in my opinion. I do believe that it was Callie had a lot to do with it, mm-hmm. whether it was like a, an assisted suicide or, hey, I might as well get this guy out of my way and like he's passed out on heroin. Why don't I just inject him with more heroin and then just might as well take him out and get him out of the way. And now like me and Corny could live happily ever after. That's what I... You're I, selling me on that. You're I really believe that, that a little more than 
black and white. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a dude that used to live with him. Are you telling me that he never saw him at the house? There's actually a documentary, or not a documentary, there's like a, I forgot what it's called. I think it's called like Kirk's Last Days or something like that. Uh-huh. Where like they play this like, you know, basically they play what it's supposed to be word for word of like, you know, right before he commits suicide. So it's like Callie like chasing him like, hey, where are you, Kirk? And he's like, like what's going on? Like, I, like he never finds him. Like he's, Kirk is basically like Michael Jackson, like hiding in little broom <laughs> closets. Like it's very <laughs> stupid because it doesn't make any sense. It's like it, it it paints it paints him as like this Michael Jackson figure of like very childish of like he's gonna dress up like a mannequin and hide in the background as as Callie's like searching for him like no, a Scooby Doo ignorant yeah like it's like he's like searching for him like a Scooby Doo like character like Zoink Scoob yeah. yeah and he's just hiding out in the background it's wow. like come on man it's it's so much bullshit that movie's stupid don't watch that movie a lot of a lot of movies though they tend to. Uh, in regards to this topic, like they tend to put their own spin on it. Like even the one like Kurt and Courtney, like it, it seems like they spent most of the movie trying to sell other people's books and whatnot, like totally like trying to take advantage of, you know, the, exploit basically the death of Kurt. Um, you asked where I stood on this. Like I came into this very much like, you know, reading all the signs um, of, of his depression and his suicide. And we, I've said this a couple of times, you know, like the whole reason why this podcast exists is because I went through a very dark period. That's when me and you started to be friends again. Cause there was a period like you and I like weren't seeing eye to eye. We weren't friends for like a year or two or whatnot. But, um, this, this topic, like when you said, let's do this topic, I was like, hell yeah. And when I really started to research it, it really reminded me of that dark time in my life where, you know, I was dating a girl very much like Courtney love um, she was that girl that I caught, you know, the back fucking my boss and whatnot. And, you know, a month later, my grandma died. Uh, a couple months later, my grandfather died, you know, and I felt like I was losing everything. And I put myself in the shoes of Kirk and what I was going through at the same time. Um, I, I've, longtime listeners know I don't drink, but this was a time period like I was going out, I was drinking a lot. Like I was like trying to self-medicate myself so i was seeing a lot of parallels between myself and kurt cobain at this time and one thing that like not a lot of people know and that's why i brought up with the rome incident is it seemed like a failed um like a test run basically suicide attempt and then for myself i remember and i'm kind of tearing up here i'm sorry i apologize everybody i remember uh, when i was going through this dark period where i knew like i'm a pussy (laughs) like i would never try to commit suicide Sorry, I'm trying to laugh through this. Yeah. But <laughs> it's pretty, pretty personal. Um, I remember, like, I had, like, this medicine. And I don't want to say what it is because I don't want anybody else doing this. And I remember, like, I test ran it where I was. Dude, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> I, I, a deep episode. I'm sorry, guys. Um, I test ran it to see, like, what would happen. Like, what would it feel like? You want me to kill some dead air here? No, that's cool, man. Oh, I got okay. it. I got it. <laughs> this is the reason why this podcast exists, though. Um, well, I wanted to test run it, too, where I was just like, hey, like, what would it feel like just to let go, like, to let go of all this pain, you know? And it wasn't just those instances, like, you know, you lose a girlfriend or you, lose, you know, go through the death of grandparents or whatnot. But it was a lot of other stuff, too, like, coming to a head, and I just amplified it. But I had, like, this medication that was pretty strong medication, and I was like, what would it feel like just to kind of test run this, you know, just to see like how it would feel, how far can I take this to, um, um, 
see see what see what would happen what would be the end result of it and i remember like taking way too much and i remember it hitting me and i can just like like a movie like an old school movie where you just see things like start to close in and and encapsulate i could see myself slipping away and i remember that freaking me the fuck out and i was just like oh shit like i got i gotta i gotta run i gotta go do something i remember running out of my old apartment and a typical fat kid running to carl's jr because it was 24 7 and running in and just ordering whatever's on the menu like just getting like everything like out of my bloodstream like you know supersized everything and did everything just to like just dilute whatever was in my system yeah but i remember that i was like oh yeah that was like a test that was a test run just to see if i could do it and yeah i did i didn't didn't do it but um i was just like i saw kurt's rome incident where it's just like okay a lot of people were saying okay it was courtney you know that was trying to you know kill him or whatnot but then why would she call the cops immediately when she found him why didn't she just let him die on the floor and then even the the doctor was like no nah, it doesn't look like a suicide attempt but something happened nobody takes that many roofies which is a date rape drug and alcohol which you know we've seen so many celebrities die of it you know Jimi hendrix um bon scott um jim belushi um a lot of these celebrities they've done it like fury yeah <laughs> <laughs> they die by mixing you know uh what's his name the guy that played the joker um heath ledger heath ledger you know you take alcohol you know and these sedatives you know and it's the recipe for disaster so i'm him being a fucking heavy drug user i'm sure he knew this and this was kind of like a test run and you see like the depression you we covered like the background of his childhood and whatnot and like all of that comes to a head and then he actually does it like he's he's very unhappy in that suicide note the first part of that suicide note and the last part of it i can't necessarily explain but maybe he was so fucked up you know on heroin you know you were talking about you know with the muscle relaxers that maybe like hey it just started to all just be a little bit sloppy and then your mind's not you know working correctly and i brought that up to about like who was saying you know it was three times amount for a, a heroin addict because the um actual toxicologist said well he could have been had a very high tolerance because I know I for myself caffeine like I have a very high tolerance for caffeine like I can kill a whole pot of coffee no problem and yeah. I can still take a nap. This is somebody that was a very heavy heroin user. You know he talked about he wanted to get three million dollars and become a junkie. Mm-hmm. Like that tells me something right there that hey he's got a high tolerance. You know Nikki Six talks about it too. Like he he did an interview where he's like well I can totally see him you know being able to pull the trigger and you know do all this heroin he goes i fucking died from an overdose you know somehow woke up and went to a show the same day mm-hmm. like he goes i can totally see that happening so he goes it's not gonna hit everybody equally but he goes i can totally see you know him being capable or just capable enough of doing it um so that was my thought on it just kind of <laughs> give my own personal exp- um experience with that world but um you did bring up a good point. Maybe it was assisted because this seems like a person too that was very, very deep and very complex where nothing was black and white in his world. He, mm-hmm. it didn't seem like he would just peace out just like all of a sudden like this, you know, he obviously didn't want to be in that recovery um, center in Los Angeles. And that's why he ran away and flew back to Seattle. But who knows we weren't there but i don't think it would be that simple 
you know, you just take heroin. And that's a big thing as well. When you take heroin, you feel this rush of euphoria. I mean, it's quick. It's going straight to your bloodstream. It's different than even the roofies. The roofies are, it's slow. I mean, anyone that's mm-hmm. taking pills knows that you pace yourself. Like, it's not a it's not a quick thing, like, like anything that getting injected into you. This, this is quick. Yeah, right it, to your we're bloodstream. We're talking about, like, you got 30 seconds to make it to the couch before you're a couch potato. Boom, yeah. And that's another reason I believe that this has to either be assisted or a cover-up. Mm-hmm. because there's no way he took that much i mean we're talking about you know according to the newspaper mm-hmm. but l- even just some heroin at this point he would probably forget about suicide I yeah mean, that's it's the number it's it's that numb feeling that you're you're craving and then like um I, I think most people that are dealing with you know with you know if it's like an, an emotional instability you're looking for something that makes you not feel something mm-hmm. and so i think that that's what he was looking for heroin is definitely a lot of people that go through depression are also going through you know addictive personalities because heroin is that intense yeah um and so that's why i believe that this, this must have either been assisted or total like fucking fake yeah but because yeah on that yeah like as soon as it hits your bloodstream you're going to feel that rush of euphoria and you're not thinking about you know killing yourself but the other thing too is is maybe he took that much to numb himself from you know the blast of the shotgun yeah. so but it, i would say kind of like you know anyone that smoked weed and weed is like a, such a common thing you know nobody dies from weed because you eventually just pass out you can't smoke yourself retarded no you just fall asleep (laughs) (laughs) even if even like somebody that's tripped out on like hardcore like weed brownies or wax or something like that like you eventually just pass out like yeah you trip out you trip out oh my god what the hell's going on oh i'm asleep yeah and i wake up seven hours later going man that was nuts let's get some waffles (laughs) yeah let's get some french toast yeah it's nuts and i feel like you know similar to what a heroin junkie goes through it's like you eventually just pass out. It's not like you can keep going. Mm-hmm. It, you know, at some point you just stop because you're just done. Like your mind is just like numbed out. I know you can, you know, OD on that though. Like yeah, hardcore. you can OD on it, but it's just like, you know, not to the point where you keep going. Like yeah, at some yeah. point you're just like, that's it. That's the limit. I'm done. I'm not moving anymore. It and, has to be all at once kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And that's why I think that, you know, if these reports are correct, because we don't know, it's a newspaper. Then it had to be some kind of assisted type of thing, or it's total fucking bullshit. And if he has, if he lives at the house, he has access to everything. He's the manny or whatever. He's gonna know, you know, how to lock that to make everything look good. Yeah, you're right. And then it could be, it could help with the cover up of it. Like, oh, okay. Uh, Case closed. Unsolved mysteries. You're welcome. Where's Robert Stack at? <laughs> resurrect that guy. <laughs> Let's get the seance going. Resurrect man. him. Anyways, man. Yeah. Good episode, man. Thank you. Good for, episode. To- Eric. Oh, Eric. Jacob, you shared a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Shout out to Elizabeth Jackman. Shout out to Elizabeth Warren. Speaking of Eric. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Make sure <laughs> you follow <laughs> us everywhere um, on social media at Art and Jacob Do America, except for Twitter. We are at Art and Jacob Do A1. So we are doing um, very naughty things to a steak sauce bottle. Um, so think of that when you want to follow us on Twitter or get at us on Twitter. Also go to our website at artandjacobdoamerica.podbean.com. There you'll find all of our episodes as well as blogs by Keith Silvis. You know, he's going to be doing um, those for us, which I think is really cool and very gracious of him. Um, hopefully he does one on this. Um, 
<laughs> I hope he doesn't tell our parents about <laughs> that ending part or whatever. That's something I haven't really shared with anyone except for a couple people. But, um, yeah, um, you can also find us at the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com where you can listen to the other- good people at the Podbelly Network. The good people. The good people at the Podbelly by the good people at the Podbelly Network. That's yeah. actually the voice I was doing it when I Really? <laughs> that was a good effect, uh, Ben. Uh, it's called Monster Effect. That was oh, the effect okay. I was using. Yeah. That's kind of a racist saying that all black people are monsters. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did tweak it so because originally it sounded like full on like Freddy Cougar monster. It was like and I was like, oh, that, I can't even understand what I'm saying. So like, I had to tweak it to the point where I could actually understand what I was saying. Or you, just that right amount of fucking Arby's, fucking Marcellus Wallace. That was the most like, it's what, like a minute long intro, or whatever. It's like, that was the most like fun one minute long of like finding samples and all this bullshit. It was pretty fun. Yeah, thank you, sir. So check out Art's uh, new intro <laughs> at the beginning of this episode. So with that, Art, do you have anything else? Uh, no, but I do want. I think it would be. Um, only it would proper. be irresponsible if we didn't give off the uh, suicide prevention hotline. That is 1-800-273-8255. And if you are going through a dark time, feel free to give them a call. If, you, uh, if you're going through a really dark time, feel free to message me. That's the only time I'll take messages on Instagram, but only Instagram because that's the only thing I check. Yeah. But other than that, I got nothing. Shout out to the Jacqueline. Tell your mommy boo too. Shout out Fightback CBD. Use cup promo code America. Thanks again to Steve Choi. Oh, yeah, Steve Choi. That was a huge episode for us. So, Steve, if you ever want to come on again, you're more than welcome to, baby. Shout out Donnie Phillips. Donnie Phillips. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. Let's get ready for October, baby. Hell, yeah. Good night. Good night.